This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Of course, joined by Terry South and Jeffrey Simpson on the board. Never been better. We don't have to talk Super Bowl. We can, though. Is there more information? Oh, yeah. Oh, radio. Well, what? What there, more? There's the exact rating number. How many the people watched. The exact number. Yeah. Right. I have how much time during the game was actually the ball moving. Oh, really? Versus people standing around in circles talking about what they're going to do next. And Lady Gaga's girdle. Kind of sure. that way. It's kind of interesting. That'll be good. Uh, That's real data. How, uh, how Putin stole a Super Bowl ring. Oh, he did. This was years ago, but I forgot about the story. It's very interesting. <laughs> so, um, and, and an update on Jerseygate. Jerseygate. Where did Tom Brady's jersey Where go? Where did it go? Where did it get off to? Yeah. I thought I told you it was Ken Griffey Jr., his teammate. Yeah. No. Wrong sport. Still on that. Just read the paper. Oh, poor Jeff. So it's quick and painless, but then, yeah, then, then the Super Bowl's gone. Then, But here's the other cool thing. Um, did you notice that they're now mentioning the um, results of how well the Trump-O'Reilly interview went, according to the ratings? Oh, I didn't see that. According to the ratings or according to Trump? According to the, the ratings, okay. Obama's uh, interview with O'Reilly was much uh, – was watched by a lot of more people than – Trump's version. So according to what Trump said yesterday on Twitter, that would be fake news. Right. It's negative against him. Fake news. Well, sure. Fake news. In fact, we're going to talk fake news in hour number two of the show. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. right. Talking fake news. Also, today we're going to be talking about the inevitable party, why attempts to kill the party system fail. Like, I don't know if you noticed, Donald Trump won the, uh, the nomination and many wonder if he's even a Republican. Right. Bernie Sanders. Many Republicans are really kind of what. Bernie Sanders almost won. Yes. And he's not even a Democrat. Right. He's a socialist. So why do we need parties if none of these people belong to the parties? Hmm? They don't seem to be functioning like they should. That's right. And it it might be simply because we don't let them, you know, remember the old method of having the the party bosses that used to Mm. run things? Yeah. Well, we've kind of not – we don't do that anymore. There's no bosses. You need party bosses. You need, the, everyone talks about the backroom deal and how bad it was, but that's how things got done. Things got done and yeah. you got better people because the party bosses knew who could win and who couldn't. And yeah, it was crooked, but it worked. And I think that's a reality show on TLC, by the way. What's it called? Party bosses. Yeah, party bosses. Yeah. Don't, aren't they party planners? Don't they just plan parties? I think so, yeah. yeah. It's a different type. Uh, aren't the Kardashians like the head mafia family of party bosses? They might be a mafia family. I don't know if they organize anything. Okay. They might just show up to parties. Oh, okay. That, that's, you know, that's part of the party. But the mafia angle it <laughs> could be explored. <laughs> like, and we mean that in the nonviolent mafia type. Yeah, it's more of a show up and take Slowly lull you to sleep. Yeah. It, it's type. mafia with a PH instead of an F. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mafia. Um, we'll, we'll be getting to all that fun about the parties because maybe we need to – Make it make the actual parties a little less democratic, mm. so we're not voting. And here's voting, and and instead make it take it back to the old party boss. Things were different back then. We'll get into that interesting little subject. Um, plus, uh, more updates on Trump as well. Today, about noon, I think, is the day that finally Senate are supposed to be voting on some of his possibly 
some of his cabinet. I was trying members. to see if there was a set time, and I don't think there's a set time. I think there is a point where people stop talking and then the, they vote. They spent all night. The Democrats spent all night giving speeches about Secretary n- nominee elect Betsy yeah. DeVos. Yeah, because she's she's supposed to be the boss, so it's DeVos. That's what yeah, I heard. She's so. yeah. But apparently not the boss. Well, she wants to. Be. Well, I don't. She struggled. She's been nominated. Yeah. Her own motivations behind this are are questionable. Hmm. Aren't they all? I, I, mean, what, I think all what's motivations not questionable, can be questionable today. Yeah. Man alive. We'll get to all that fun. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Donald Trump on Monday accused the media of refusing to cover terror attacks. Radical Islamic terrorism are determined to strike at our homeland as they did on on nine eleven is. They did from Boston to Orlando to San Bernardino and all across Europe, Trump said during an address at the McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. Radical Islamic terrorists are determined to strike our homeland as they did on 9-11, as they did from Boston to Orlando to San Bernardino and all across Europe. You've seen what happened in Paris and Nice all over Europe, it's happening. It's gotten to a point where it's not even being reported. And in many cases, the very, very dishonest press doesn't want to report it. They have their reasons, and you understand that. As I was reading that, I'm like, why don't you just let him say it? Uh, Trump did not get specific on which terrorist activities were being ignored by journalists. In recent days, top White House aide Kellyanne Conway has come under fire repeatedly citing the non-existent Bowling Green massacre yeah. as a terrorist attack on Muslims. She said it on uh, MSNBC on Hardball. Then after that came out, the people at Cosmo were like, wait, she said that to us in an interview. And then they pulled up the transcript and there it was. And then there's a video where she said it to TMZ. Well, maybe she's like predicting a massacre because a massacre did not occur. Right. But she keeps kind of pointing out it something. Up. And then, mm, then she said she just misspoke. Okay. Do you, can you misspoke, misspeak three times? Oh, for sure. Is that what happens? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Every so day of my life. On Monday night, the White House reportedly issued a list of terror attacks they believe had been underreported, a list of 78 incidences. Among the attacks were the extensively covered Paris attacks and the 2015 shooting with, on San Bernardino. NBC this morning went to their archives and they said they covered 57 of the 78 attacks on that list. Uh, there's the point made right there. 745 people died in these attacks, including uh, the Paris attack, which 130 people died. Uh, and left 400 people wounded. By contrast, the 21 attacks NBC News did not cover were smaller incidents in places like Egypt, Bosnia, or Bangladesh, resulting in the deaths of just eight people total. And? And They're like, well, okay, what are we covering? What are we talking about? We're talking about terrorism. Uh, As we were saying... Overnight, the Senate Democrats holding court in the, on the Senate floor, part of a 24-hour effort to highlight the unusually large amount of opposition to President Trump's education pick, Betsy DeVos. Mm. 48 Democrats, two Republicans expected to uh, be part of the marathon. I bet you it was fully covered by C- uh, what, C-SPAN, if anyone knows where C-SPAN is on their cable dial. I'm not sure. Uh, the Republicans are Senator Susan Collins from Maine and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. Both have said they'll oppose the vote. Uh, because of uh, their constituents calling them, yeah, letting them know that uh, they don't approve, they don't like this. She's not a good pick. She seems like she's try again underqualified. Go find somebody else. If it comes down and it is necessary that it's, if it stays the way it is, Mike Pence will have to vote 
uh, break the you know the tie-breaking vote. And yeah. That would be the first time in history a vice president has to cast a tie-breaking vote for a cabinet secretary. But that inter- what's interesting is don't don't you find it strange that there's there, there are only two that are voting against her, right? Two which, Republicans, which probably means that the party's fine with that. I guess the GOP is fine with that. But if three. If they get one we more, we can't have that. So, so the whole point of twenty-four hours of speeches mm-hmm. is one. So I'm going to bet Republican. those two senators lots really. They, there's a lot of pressure. They need to bend the other way. Yeah, okay, lots that of makes phone sense. Calls. Uh, according to Political, the White House still reeling from a Saturday Night Live sketch that took aim at Press Secretary Sean Spicer. Yeah, the big issue at hand is they thought it was too mean and that he was portrayed by a woman. And yet he oh, himself thought it was funny. Well, that's what he said. I don't know how funny he actually thought it was. So, I, who's saying this? Uh, the White House. The White House, meaning the spokesperson, Spicer. Spicy. Not, not specifically. This is this is one of those things where it's like the word from an uneasy yeah. West Wing is that there is they're not real happy. They don't. President Trump doesn't like his people to be portrayed as weak, right, or human. Well, he doesn't want to be humanized, which is, there's yeah. the other issue <laughs> that he has a problem with that uh, New York Times uh, story that had him in his uh, what his house coat, his, yeah. his robe, watching TV. He goes, he doesn't even own a robe. How could he be in his robe? There's all kinds of problems with that story. That's what Sean so Spicer said. Naked. There's I, an image for you. That's not what they're saying. He's probably wearing his suit because he, he always wears a well, suit. Why would his wear birthday it suit? His... Man. <laughs> Keep going there. So it was too mean, and he was portrayed by a woman, which they didn't like either. Wow. Uh, and finally, the Super Bowl's over. Jersey gate in full swing. Tom Brady, uh, his jersey misplaced or possibly stolen. After the game, as he set it down to change, turned around, and it's gone. So where's that jersey? Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, different Dan Patrick, yeah. has called on law enforcement to track it down, the Texas Tribune reports. Both the Houston Police Department and the Texas Rangers, not the baseball team, the law enforcement agency, on the Jersey's trail, per a statement from the, uh, the Lieutenant Governor's office, very high value on a ho- on, Texas places a very high value on hospitality and football. We don't want to be the footnote to an amazing no. game that and the Jersey got stolen. Nobody messes with Texas Tom jerseys. Brady told ESPN, he goes, let me know if it pops up on eBay. Well, this is – see, this is what President Trump wants. The same attention that the Texas police departments are paying to getting that jersey back. Right. They want – he wants the press to pay that same attention to him. They are. In good ways. Oh. Like how? Just with positive real news. Not the critical fake news? No. No more fake news. Okay. Boy, that I'll jersey – that jersey's turning into a real issue. It's a big deal. Okay, there, I, what was the price? I saw a price at some point. Like someone speculated that, uh, oh, it could fetch, uh, fetch, fetch. It could fetch seven figures. They said, "Wow, for that sweaty, nasty jersey." Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it would it would uh, devalue it if you washed it. Yeah, that's the thing. Is it's going to come back, and they're going to find out that it was like rolled up with one of the towels, and it went through the washer. But does Tom Brady really get that? Like sweaty playing? Yeah. He does. Not like a lineman. Not like no. not like people no. are actually, you know. But did you notice there was so much hugging of sweaty bodies I after? Right. There's the transfer. I think all the linemen were wiping their sweat on him. That's gross. But he also, he got tackled a lot. Yeah. And, so. he, and those were, there was a lot of chalk on the field, like a lot of uh, paint. paint. Yeah, the paint was an so issue. He, he got really 
gooey. There were guys that were covered in red that should have been a white jersey. I know. I thought there was like a shooting or something. No, it was really, really dangerous. Tragic. By the way, I forgot to say, it's it's wave all of your fingers at your neighbor's day. Very important. All of your fingers. All of them. Uh, Wave all of your fingers at your neighbor's day is the perfect opportunity to greet your neighbor with a big wave. But be careful. Yeah. Make sure all the fingers are waving. It also pointed out you in the right the, order. You need to have a big smile. Yeah, greet him with a smile. Yeah, and something like "Hey, neighbor." Right. Yeah, don't grit your teeth. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have never had their neighbor do this, so it might be new to some people. Without a doubt, the day was created to put a smile on your face and upon your neighbor's face. The intent is to build friendlier, better relationships with your neighbors. Someday you'll need them. So I've lived across the street from a guy for 14 years. Really? I think we waved at each other like three times. Well, did, let's do it today. And I don't know what started it, but it just, for whatever reason, we just don't You hate wave each it. other. It's not even that. I've talked to him several times. So. He came over and told me that after a, a community party, some guy was sleeping on my front lawn. I'm <laughs> like, thank you. Did he wave his fingers at you to get your no, attention? Nice guy. He goes, hey, by the way, there was some guy sleeping on your lawn. I'm like, thanks. You're like, dad. I appreciate that. My dad was in Father's Day. You know, Terry also mentioned that it's Ballet Day. Yes, it is. I it didn't is? Put, I didn't put that on the list, mainly because I was like, why are we going to do this? When was the last time you went to a ballet? Uh, Next to never. Yeah, me too. In fact, my mom and my sister, when I was a kid, would go see The Nutcracker. Yeah. And my dad and my brother and I would go see Ernest Saves Christmas. So I mean, there. Or Ernest saves the ballet. Did you see we, that one? No, nope, your saw, mother has so much more class. Ernest goes to camp. I believe we saw that movie too. Really? Yeah, that was just kind of the level of entertainment at the time. You saw all the Ernest movies. Yeah, my mom and my sister culture. I'm my so father sorry. and the boys Ernest. That's sad. So bad for you. I saw an Ernest movie one time. I think it was called The Importance of Being Ernest. Wow. I was that. I think that's different. Yeah. No, I had Jim Varney in it. There you go. Um, don't know what to say about that. This is great music, though. Mm. It brings an extra. I think it lifts our level of game. Yeah. Would you go see the Nutcracker if it had uh, explosions in it? Oh, absolutely. Now that I mean, Nutcracker we just played—that was explosive. I mean, they run around with some like bayonets and stuff if they're authentic Nutcracker. So that, no, that could be interesting. They're just toys. The only ballet that ends in gangrene. I do feel at some point I will be at a ballet. Oh, you will be. And that's inevitable. So. No, you'll be going. Nothing. It's so fun, though, to watch your little girl dance. A little tutu on. So cute. We're growing up, folks. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, we will be talking with Seth Maskett. Seth is the chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Denver. We'll be talking about his book, The Inevitable Party, why attempts to kill the party system fail, and how they weaken democracy. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. With so much discord between the Republican and Democratic parties, and now with the executive uh, branch of our federal government, many people are wondering if political parties are a thing of the past. Is it possible for one uh, of our current major political parties to branch off on their own? Is it possible to kill the two-party system? I mean, think about it. 
Uh, Donald Trump, who even knew if he was a Republican, really, or not? And uh, when we think of Bernie Sanders, not or not a Democrat, yet still one of the big contenders in the uh, Democratic Party. So here to help us through some of the the just the fog of our party system is um, Dr. Seth E. Maskett. He's the author of The Inevitable Party. Seth is the chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Denver. Dr. Maskett, thank you so much for being with us again. Well, thanks for having me on. This is um, this is time to learn. It's time to figure this out. There has been major division, right? Um, always, I guess, in the two party system. But the the two party system is it? It's it's not constitutionally bound, right? It's not created by the Constitution. No, in fact, uh, the, the Constitution seems to kind of go out of its way to avoid mentioning parties. <laughs> uh, the founders seem to think they could do a a democracy without parties, uh, which is you know somewhat surprising given. Given the experiences that uh, that Britain had been having at the time, uh, that we'd even seen in some of the, the the early colonies here that had their own party systems, but they, they kind of they didn't like what they knew about parties and sort of hoped to have a government without one. Isn't that it's that seems strange to me? Like so, what? I, and this is important because it seems like um, when with Hillary Clinton running, the party was very much trying to push everyone out except Hillary. Yeah, that was, and in many ways, that was kind of a typical presidential uh, nomination cycle, where you really see the party rally very early around a favorite and uh, give her all sorts of advantages. Um, you know, just you, you saw as early as uh, 2014, 2015, a lot of governors, a lot of Democratic members of Congress had all come out and endorsed Hillary Clinton. Um, she had, a, you know, all the major Democratic Party donors were behind her, all these major super PACs. And it's not that uh, you know, it's not that, there was, that Bernie Sanders was the only one interested in challenging her. I mean, there were plenty of Democrats who would have run, but they all sort of got the message that this was not the year to do it. That this was the year the party was behind Clinton. Interesting. And so it kind of it moved a lot of the people out. Bernie stayed in, but not even a Republican or not even a Democrat, right? right. And so, right. Um, so really, then. But but this this seems like, from what I'm hearing and reading um, in some of your articles, this is still a different party than the old days. When th- th- this is, your, I guess you're calling a more democratic party. Um, yeah, one of the things you know that we've been seeing just you know very slowly over a long period of time is a, a kind of slow democratization of of both parties, um, and using just sort of the small D democratic yeah, right. meaning that. Uh, you know, kind of the, the rank and file, the regular people are more in charge of the major parties' decisions, like who to nominate for different offices and uh, what, what the platform should look like. I mean, it used to be a very small group of people making these decisions in the parties. Go back to the 1800s, and it was, you know, a few members of Congress. You'd have some sort of party boss and a convention. In the early 1900s, you get uh, the move toward uh, uh, direct primaries, where voters can actually participate in these things. Um, uh, Wisconsin's the first state to do that on a statewide basis in, in uh, 1904. And, uh, you know, since that time, there's more of a, of a voter direct role in that. By the 1970s, uh, you just have this explosion of uh, presidential primaries and caucuses. And, you know, there's, I mean, there's uh, some other literature on this, but, uh, you know, what, what we've generally found is that even as voters have had more of a direct say in this, uh, their preferences are still kind of guided 
by party leaders. That is, you know, uh, party insiders can sort of say, these are the people we prefer. They've got all our money. They've got all our endorsements. And voters usually follow that route. Uh, that doesn't happen all the time, though. Um, obviously, we saw that with Bernie Sanders last year, who did a lot better than one would expect, uh, you know, given how much the party had indicated its support for Hillary Clinton. And, of course, on the Republican side, it was, you know, kind of a complete mess, where the party never really said <laughs> which candidate it wanted, and it ended up with someone who um, was in many ways not really consistent with Republican Party principles at all. Right. Do, do you think um, – Donald Trump could have done it without a party because it seems like he was always at odds with the party anyway. If he had just run as a third party candidate, could he have could he have done it using the same message? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, if there had actually been a, you know, kind of a regular Republican nominee like a like a Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or someone like that and Hillary Clinton and then Donald Trump running as a third party candidate, uh, we we don't have too many examples of that. Probably the best example would be like Ross Perot running in 1992. It's 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 very hard to break into that system. Voters right. too, do tend to go back to their partisan camps as November approaches. Um, so I tend to doubt Trump would have won. I mean, obviously he's very well known. He had a lot of money. Um, he would have probably put up a pretty good fight. But it's it's that's just a rare situation for. Uh, uh, a non a, a person without a party to do well in. Well, and I guess too, until it's accepted, and Bernie Sanders runs independent, and you've got five or six real viable independent candidates, it probably wouldn't work. Um, is it so? Is what's happening with the part the two party system? You always hear of people that want to have more parties and and increase the you know the 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 party system. Is is that even ever going to happen? Is can we will we ever move? to more than real two viable parties? Well, the, the type of election system that the U.S. has, uh, basically what's, what's considered first-past-the-post elections, so whoever wins, whoever gets slightly more votes than all the other candidates gets the whole prize, um, gets the whole congressional district or wins the whole state for the governor's seat or whatever, um, those type of election systems tend to produce two-party systems. Um, and this is just you know, something we've seen in democracies all over the world, uh, basically, voters don't want to throw away a you know a vote on a third party candidate that could end up just electing the person they they like least. Um, so people tend to concentrate their efforts on into two parties. Um, we'd have to, I think, pretty substantially change the way we conduct elections to really change that. I, I think you know if, if people do want you know different representation than than they have now, they they kind of have to operate within the two party system and change who, who you know which sort of candidates get nominated by each of the parties. Mm. In your book, uh, Inevitable Party: Why Attempts to Kill the Party System Fail and How They Weaken Democracy, talk about what your argument is. Uh, is so the two party system then you you sense enhances our democracy, enhances our choices, enhances our lives. Yeah, so parties, uh, you know, I think as we know, they, they get a pretty bad rap. Uh, uh, people tend to criticize them for creating unnecessary discord, um, for making it harder for the country to do the things it needs to do. Um, but, you know, what I find and, and what I, you know, especially, essentially spend the last chapter arguing is that they do a lot of good and, and uh, they, it's actually difficult to conceive of uh, a functional democracy without a party system. 
Um, what parties do is that they allow voters a way to be involved. Most voters are not going to spend a lot of time uh, looking up what candidates believe, what different office holders have uh, done while in office, who's donating to whom. Um, that's just that's beyond most people's interest or capabilities. But what they can do is see uh, which team is in charge. They can see whether, you know, they can know whether it's the Democrats running the, the state or the country or the Republicans. They can make a decision about whether they like the way things are going or not, and they can reward or punish uh, the party in power. Um, parties basically give them a way to do that. Parties are a great way to organize a legislature, to bring some structure to debates. Um, there are great ways to organize elections, to get people to turn out and vote. And as my book finds, um, you know, a lot of efforts to drive parties out of the system uh, tend to have pretty perverse effects. I mean, not only do they usually, those efforts usually fail, but they usually end up making things worse off than when they started. Hmm. Does it uh, – I mean it also seems like what we might be seeing with um, President Trump is Reince Priebus, the old head of the RNC um, – actually the young head of the – our old RNC. He he seems to bring almost a consistency to the White House where you know he's integrated with Congress, the, the typical protocols and methodologies of uh, of governing seem to be carried by him. Where so in a way the party brings the tradition and the history it seems like and the connection to Congress. Yeah, so I'd say I mean Trump is probably not a great example of this, yeah. but you know in in most presidencies you'll have a uh, you know a president will get in there and no one really knows how to be a president before they've done it before. Right. I mean it it, it requires a, a huge set of skills and. Um, connections that no single individual has before they've done that. Um, but what a party does is essentially staff the place. I mean, uh, it, it allows connections with Congress. It allows connections with uh, people of the same party at the state level with different governors and state legislators. Um, it allows contacts with uh, uh, interest groups and social movements um, that really allow a president to to govern, to set an agenda and to try and get that enacted. That would be uh, that, that's nearly impossible to do without a party behind you. Now, I, I'm pretty sure it was with you before, Seth, that we talked about um, the fact that the parties themselves, they're so disparate. They're so differing in how they approach. Like, I mean, they're just different. Republicans are so different from Democrats, even in how they organize the party. Is, aren't, aren't, they, aren't they really inherently always at opposition? Um. Yes, to an extent. I mean, we we are in an area of of pretty impressive polarization. Uh, arguably, the the parties are further apart today than they've ever been in American history, um, which is you know kind of astounding considering American history. But you know, it's not just that uh, like Democratic members of Congress always vote against Republican members of Congress and and vice versa. But it's also that the two parties believe very different things right. uh, than than each from each other. Um, they just have very different worldviews. They have, and you know, we we're in a world today where they can even seek uh, different media sources to confirm what they already believe about the world. Um, so we are in an area of, of, of pretty intense polarization. Um, that said, there's you know there's still areas where the parties are able to come together. In most states, uh, have most states have a balanced budget requirement in their state legislatures. And the parties may not like it necessarily, but they usually are able to 
uh, work out an agreement. And sometimes it just comes down to, a, you know, a simple majority vote, but people operate within those rules. And the losing side say, well, I'll just, you know, I'll work on it and try and get more seats in the next election. And then they come around and do it again. So it is possible. You know, we, we do have systems that allow for uh, parties to have very disparate worldviews and still be in a functional democracy. Huh. Um, it's not necessarily working that well at the at the national level, though. Is, so is that there? Is that why people are so so many attacks on American two party system? Is it is it? Um, well, what is it? Why why do we want to get rid of something that's that's seemingly working? Is it just that we see them always fighting? Well, we've seen some uh, some pretty high profile examples of uh, major gridlock at the national level, um, particularly in the last. Uh, you know, in the last 10, maybe 20 years. Um, we've seen a few budget shutdowns. Um, we've seen, you know, the, the, the credit rating of the United States threatened. Um, you know, there's, and, you know, some, some very uh, high-profile pieces of legislation that have been fought to a, to a complete standstill. You know, not to mention, uh, you know, the impeachment of Bill Clinton you could throw in there as well. Um, these are examples of, of what you might call hyperpolarization, um, where you know the parties really cannot see eye to eye, and it's to the point where it's actually making it difficult for the government to conduct its business. And this is where a lot of reform movements have come out of. They've said, "Look, this this system is simply too polarized. We can't get things done. We need to come up with some way to rein in." The partisanship, and and that's where we've seen a lot of innovation, and this is really what the the book gets into. Some of these these innovations done at the state level um, to kind of rein in uh, what's seen as excessive partisanship. In some places, you know, it, it can be things like, I mean, the uh, you know the direct primary was actually seen as a way to um, cut out uh, partisanship. Um, the there's uh, Nebraska currently has a, an officially nonpartisan legislature. Uh, Minnesota had a nonpartisan legislature for 60 years. I, I look at those wow. examples. Um, and I look at a campaign finance reform measure in Colorado that was designed to uh, cut the parties out of the deal. You know, and, and, you know, the basic finding there is that these things tend not to work. Hmm. Um, and in the long run, uh, you can't just sort of make parties go away through legislation. They exist at a very basic level of politics. They're a very natural way for people to organize political opposition and dissent, and uh, they'll, they'll tend to show up even stronger than before. Um, and what you often uh, end up with is uh, a system that's harder to track, normal political transactions. It's harder, mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you, you, you take parties out of uh, campaign finance and you end up the money is still there, but it's just in it goes underground. a lot harder to find places. Yeah. Uh, and if you take parties out of elections, basically the partisanship is still there. It's just harder to track, and voters are get, get more confused by elections. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, we'll take a break, Seth. We are speaking with Seth Maskett, author of the book The Inevitable Party, Why Attempts to Kill the Party System Fail and How, the weak, and how They Weaken Democracy. Um, he is a uh, chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Denver and is going to continue to enlighten us about the two-party system. You can hate it, but it's also serving a great purpose um, in many ways. When we come back, we'll talk about ways we might be able to, to make it healthier, if that's possible. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking with Dr. Seth Maskett, who is a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Denver. He researches political parties, campaigns, and elections, and state and local politics, and uh, is a contributor um, to Voxes.com's Mischief of Faction blog. And we're honored to have you on the show. Thanks again for being with us, Seth. Well, thanks again. So when we talk parties, I mean, it seems like the parties, it's a neat little binary system, right? But it it doesn't always seem to fit me, um, for example, or I think others, uh, Republican or Democrat, it seems like I mean, you even almost see it with uh, Donald Trump. He's loved by a lot of a party, but not the whole party. It And people are frustrated. Or um, you see with Hillary Clinton, I mean, some people may be a more moderate, you know, Democrat and not as progressive. And so how how do people fit into these yeah. parties? This is one of the major sources of frustration, particularly with a, a two-party system, yeah. where you have basically just two parties representing a, a, a pretty diverse uh, group of voters. So, um, you know, you have, I mean, the Democrats contain, you know, multitudes, basically. You've got, like, uh, environmentalists in there. You have um, auto unions in there, and they're, they're not necessarily seeing eye to eye on things. The Republicans contain, like, a, you've got, like, groups of, of Christian conservatives. You also have uh, sort of a business group, and uh, they don't necessarily see eye to eye on things. Um, so it's difficult. It's a constant negotiation that the parties are making um, within these massive coalitions. Um, and particularly in an era of polarization, where you have the Democrats moving to the left and the Republicans moving to the right, you have a lot of voters and a lot of districts kind of left in the middle where you have a fair number of moderates in there who are just saying, I don't really feel represented by either of these groups. And every election that they face is a choice between a very liberal Democrat or a very conservative Republican, and they might say to themselves, look, I I don't necessarily see eye to eye with either of these people. And you end up, there's a fair number of of, uh, pretty moderate districts out there that end up uh, f- jumping back and forth between very liberal and very conservative uh, representatives. Um, and that is that is a source of frustration for voters. That is one of the sources of these types of reform movements uh, that we've seen over the years, where people say, well, there, there has to be something better. There yeah. has to be some way to uh, encourage more moderate candidates to run for office and to give them better odds of winning. I guess it's the, that would be the independents, and it seems like the independents get a lot of attention – as everybody seems to be vying for that middle that middle group, but it also doesn't seem like anybody you know inherently represents me. So so does it? How do we? I mean, I guess I, I guess in the end, though, it's still it, I still possess power, maybe even more power than somebody that just jumps on board to either side. Yeah. So independent voters are an interesting lot. So uh, you know, people who really do identify as independents, and there's. You know, there's a lot of ways to look at that. Uh, what, what, what pollsters have found is that a lot of people call themselves independent, but if you press them a little bit, you'll find, well, it's just I don't want to call myself a Republican or a Democrat, but I actually do tend to vote just one way on, mm. on ballots. Um, but there are there is some core of people who really are independent. They bounce back and forth between the parties. Um, and what we know about those folks is that they actually they for the most part, don't pay a lot of attention to politics, not yeah. nearly as much as those who identify with the parties. 
Um, and they mostly tune in like just a few weeks before an election um, and find that the choices that they've been presented with are not that great. Um, but yeah, those, those folks do get a lot of attention uh, from the candidates themselves. I mean, if you think of the, the presidential debates last year, there was that one town hall-style debate between Clinton and Trump that was, it was only independent voters, uh, people who basically undecided between the candidates who were allowed in the room. Um, and, you, you know, you end up with uh, kind of an interesting array of questions, but ones that aren't necessarily like the ones that Democrats and Republicans are out there asking. Yeah. Does um, – as you – I mean, I know it's hard to read Donald Trump, but what do you sense Donald Trump is going to do to the two-party system? That is really tough to, to predict right now. I mean, one of the most interesting things is, to me over the last year – is how much the Republican Party has rallied to him. Yeah. Um, traditionally, what we've seen is that you know when you have candidates competing for a presidential nomination, they have to do a lot to convince their party's activists that they're sincerely on board with with that party's program. Um, if you think of like John McCain running in 2000, where uh, a lot of uh, you know old party insiders just didn't trust him. They didn't think he was conservative enough. They they thought he was too much of a maverick. And he really and he when he lost the nomination that year, he really went out of his way to over the next eight years to you know, to, to prove himself to be uh, more of a conservative and move somewhat to the right on a number of issues. And that made it okay to nominate him in 2008. Trump really didn't do any of this. I mean, he did. You know, he he gave some. Uh, he talked about his pro-life credentials and a few other things, but for the most part, he he remained very different from the party on a lot of key issues, on Social Security, on trade, on uh, the use of the military, and he still won the nomination, and the party really moved to him. And you've seen members of Congress who say, look, he's not where I am on many issues, but I'm willing to back him because he's our president. Um, so... I'm curious to see how long this lasts. I mean, will he fundamentally reshape what the Republican coalition looks like and stands for? Um, or, you know, are they ultimately will it end up where it was previously? I mean, I think he stands, you know, given uh, how unusual an election this was, I think it does stand to shake things up somewhat um, with more of the, the pro-trade uh, voters moving into the Democratic coalition and and uh, Republicans being the more anti-trade coalition. Yeah, um, it really uh, feels but, like the whole thing is shifted, right? I mean, Democrats are talking are are more well with Hillary Clinton sounded at at times a little more hawkish and even more pro business in a way. Uh, Democrat or the Republicans seemed really pro trade. Um, Anyway, it was, it was just – it was so it, – it seemed like a completely different world. And also what about the idea of, I don't know, the carpetbagger where it, it seems like Donald Trump, not a politician, um, may have changed some of his beliefs, his values and, and came in and, and won over the Republicans. Bernie Sanders is still even being touted as the choice they should have made um, but not necessarily a Democrat. Is it – are these parties now in a place where they'll just accept a big name brand person, a big name to come in and be their candidate if they if the name itself could help them get elected? Um, the name could matter. I mean, it's uh, you know, I, 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 an Oprah or a yeah, 
Yeah, my impression from last year was that the you know the Democratic Party was still more or less functioning uh, like a regular political party. You know, it was it was giving advantages to some candidates. Um, it's it still had some healthy competition within the party. Sanders maybe did a little better, lasted a little longer than we normally would have expected such a candidate to do. But uh, you know, still the uh, you know the, the the die was kind of cast. Uh, Pretty early on there, um, I think you know. Arguably, what uh, one of my uh, uh, co-writers at Mistress of Faction, uh, Julia Azari, has been making the argument that what we have right now are uh, strong partisanship but weak parties, um, which in many ways is a is, is a tricky situation to be in. That mm. was, you know, where almost anyone can get in and get the nomination, and once that person has the nomination, the party will really rally around them, uh, no matter who they are or what they stand for. Mm. Um, and that's kind of a tricky situation for a democracy to find itself in. No, totally. In fact, that makes sense with what you see Trump doing as well. Yeah. What would you? Uh, what would advice do you give us going forward? How can we, as citizens, you know, strengthen the parties, and how can we maybe make them play better together? Well, um, you know, one of the things uh, I was looking at in in the book, uh, or, you know, uh, just trying to just speculate on some ways that we actually could make parties function a little better together. I, I think part of the answer is instead of trying to, you know, create parties that work better within our democracy, maybe, you know, tinker with our democracy to make it work better with the parties we have. Um, you know, you can have kind of majority rule situations where even if the parties really see the world very differently, you can still get governing done. That doesn't really mesh very well with, say, a Senate filibuster. Um, it doesn't mesh very well in states where you have to, like, come up with a two-thirds vote to pass a budget or anything like that or raise taxes. Um, the idea is if you simply have a, you know, kind of a basis for simple majority rule, um, you can have a majority party that governs and voters can evaluate uh, that party on how well it did and they can make another decision in the next election. Hmm. That's so that might be one way to do it. Yeah. Uh, another thing I talk about is just is the role that the media has to play. Um, there's been a few studies finding that, you know, one of the things that does seem to affect uh, how, how elected officials govern is uh, the quality of media coverage. If they are covered more intensely by, by newspapers, by radio, by TV, they tend to behave in a more moderate way. They're concerned about looking like extremists, which, uh, you know, they tend to believe will, will cost them votes hmm. in the next election. Um, so it's, it's a great time for uh, the media to provide even more coverage of our Congress people, of our, of our state legislators. You know, it's, that's, a, that's a real challenge in a time of, uh, you know, just you know, dramatically declining media budgets. But uh, there's, I think there's a real role for, uh, uh, for, for just the media to be playing in all this. Mm. What about, too, I, I mean, it seems like a lot of what we're seeing in Congress, a lot of Congress, I mean, if, if the GOP holds a lot of state houses and uh, the majority, it, they, can, they can gerrymander, right? They can mess with the districts. I, I know somewhere you recommended that maybe – it would be better to let the courts uh, be in charge of setting up districts. Well, I mean, I, I you know, I've looked at some of the uh, some proposals. of the proposals on this, yeah. on, uh, and you know, what what we tend to find is that you know, no matter who draws up the districts, whether it's courts or whether it's state legislators or some independent commission, 
um, you don't necessarily get more or less polarized districts out mm. of that. Um, and gerrymandering tends to work in a couple of different directions at once. Um, in some places, uh, people are trying to draw more polarized districts. In other places, they're actually drawing more moderate districts to make seats more competitive. Um, but uh, I, I don't know if, you know, changing gerrymandering, you know, there, there might be some goods that come out of that, but I don't think it'll actually have much of an effect on uh, on polarization. Yeah. In the end, it's still – it's. I mean, all politics are local, right? So it's still going to end up being one-on-one voting. Yeah, all politics are local, and in the end, you know, to a certain extent, they're individual. I yeah. mean, uh, you know, people have different views, and there's no reason necessarily we can make people agree. Parties are just a way uh, to kind of organize that disagreement and to actually have – uh, public debates and public arguments and provide critiques of of elected officials and the way things are going. So mm. I, I, I tend to think that, uh, you know, strong parties operating within some, you know, some good rules can actually be uh, very beneficial to a party system, even if they're very frustrating in the short run. Yeah. Well, Dr. Maskett, thanks. Appreciate you, Seth. Keep up the great work. And everybody, go check out the book, The Inevitable Party, Why Attempts to Kill the Party System Fail and How They Weaken Democracy Isn't it interesting? We keep wondering how these things can ever stay alive after, for example, the last election. And yet they regroup. Do you remember a few 10 years ago, the Republicans were regrouping and now look where it got them. It's just nothing, nothing more predictable than change. Stick with us. We'll take a break. Come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you think about the party system, and again, I think everybody wants to be frustrated with something when it comes to politics. So we usually would like to blame government, or we could, if we if we can, just blame the Democrats or the Republicans, depending on which party you're in. Or, you know, once they get elected, you could then just blame the candidate, the the president or, or whomever. So uh, yesterday I had some ch- a chance to watch um, – the the press dinner, what's it called? The White House Correspondents' Dinner, where they usually bring in a comedian to roast pretty much everybody and the president. And I watched the roasting of President Obama after he won the first term. So it was fairly new into his presidency. And it was it was just so full of praise and so full of hope. And then after four years later, he won again. And um it was probably I don't remember. It was who was it? Seth Meyers or did Stephen Colbert do one of those? Yeah, he did one. Seth Meyers did one. Uh, Conan O'Brien did one. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that just four years after the president Obama, who had who was just you know basically coronated because he was the king. I mean, it was such a cool moment. I think breaking history and all these things. But the jokes were so much more about how little's getting done and how hope isn't there anymore. And so the funny thing is nothing changes like success. And, um, you know, a lot of people are struggling with Donald Trump's startup. But, you know, can it get better? Well, you'd sure hope so. You really would sure hope so. But even the one president that was so loved eight years ago had a lot of pain, even from the people that loved him. So, 
we got to figure this out, folks. we got to figure out better ways to work together or really every candidate goes down. We'll take a break. That's the first hour of the show. Stick with us. Next hour, more fun, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger, lead a healthier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, 24-7. Just same old guy. And this is the show where we give you the information, the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. Jeff Simpson's with me, Terry South, hanging out. And boy, have we got a show for you. By the way, happy wave all of your fingers at your neighbor's day. Today's the day. You wave all of them. At the same time, or can you do one at a time? No, I wouldn't do one at a time. It will be misconstrued. Hmm. So I would just wave all five if you got them. If you don't have five, don't feel bad. Why just isn't wave it what just you got. wave at your neighbor? No, apparently it's uh, all your fingers. But do you ever wave at your neighbor without using all your fingers? Some people do. Hmm. I guess if you didn't have all your fingers. I mean, you could just like say peace, you know, peace or thumbs up. Well, the peace sign could be misconstrued. Donald does a lot of thumbs up. You could do peace. You could do hang loose. You could do... See, you just used all your fingers right there. That yeah. covered all the bases. But I, I, Yeah, but I didn't wave all my fingers. See what I'm saying? So wave your fingers. Today's the day. You just this is gonna where you're gonna create better relationships. A little wave, a little smile, a little howdy neighbor. You know? <laughs> What's your problem? Nothing. No comment. Does that remind you of somebody? Howdy neighbor. Nope. Yeah, it does. I can tell. <laughs> I can see it in your eyes. We'll get to uh we'll get to that. The judgment is deafening, so the um we will also be talking about just a lot of great, you know, empty news, we call it, Matt Townsend news, just the, the empty news, the news you don't always hear on the, you know, you don't hear it on CNN. We've got a new sponsor, too, and I have no idea why they chose this show to air their commercials. Cause why, why would you say that? What do you mean? I just feel like the type of listeners that we attract – might not be able to afford this particular product. Well, but can we say who the sponsor is? No. But it's a really cool sponsor. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll, uh, we'll get I, to that. You might. You might even be confused. You might because it's it's this this company doesn't normally put out such an expensive product. No. But it, they're going to do it this time. Fantastic new sponsor. We'll be talking about them in just a few minutes. Also, um, we will get to a topic about, you know, alternative facts. What are you, you know, what are you supposed to do when everyone's putting out these alternative facts? Alternative facts. Hmm. And what what should the libraries of the world do who have the real facts, who store the truth? Now, this specific guest we've had on before, he, he was on talking several months ago about how libraries are changing for the internet. Yeah. And how uh, a lot of what was in a library 30 years ago doesn't work right now. Wrong. Doesn't, you know, paper, books and stuff. Yeah. They're still there, but not in the same 
quantities you, as they were before. Right. Wrong. And so it's more about information management. It's about in, it's about intelligence management. Right. You're wrong. And he's kind of moved on to this other topic of now, what do you do when it comes to fake news when you're trying to manage information? I mean, how do you it, tell? Yeah. How do you how do you discern? explain it and discern it? Yeah. That's cool. So it can't be false if it's written in a book, is what you're saying. Well, unless the book is titled "Fake News," <clears throat> then it totally can. Or from Joe Bob Press or something yeah. like that. Joe Bob is a trusted source of information. I'll have you know. <laughs> We'll get to all of that. How do you know what is real? What is the truth? So it's it's a big it's a big issue I think for all of us and by the way for our kids going forward. So we'll have that fun. But first to the headlines. Oh, by the way, and then we'll talk about comeback stories with Caitlin Thomas, one of our great producers, and um, in honor of the apparently greatest comeback in, in, in NFL, NFL history. NFL history. In the the only. No, I guess not the only, but a 25-point comeback. That's huge. There's some bigger regular season comebacks, yeah. but it's different when you're playing for the you know world championship, as they call it, even though we're the only ones that really play the sport. Well, plus just the comeback between Roger Goodell and right. Mr. Kraft. That was great. They seem like they're friends again. And then Kraft's response, we've been through a lot the last two years and just kind of left it at that. I think the greatest comeback in NFL history was uh, Rocky Balboa over Apollo Creed. Okay. Uh, to the news. We found we found a hole in Jeff's gamesmanship. He yeah. only knows – he doesn't know football. Right. But we'll figure it out, Jeff. No big deal. But to the news with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? As this story puts it, anyone who watched cable news, read a newspaper, or logged onto Facebook or blinked in the days after terror attacks in San Bernardino, Brussels, and Orlando, they were aware of what took place. But those well-documented incidents were included in a list distributed by a White House official Monday night of attacks the administration believes did not get enough media coverage. The official said most of the 78 terror attacks that happened between 2014 and 2016 did not receive adequate attention from Western media sources. Earlier in the day, President Trump, while speaking at U.S. Central Command in Florida, falsely accused the media of choosing not to report on terror attacks. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer quickly halfway walked back the comment, saying Trump meant to say the incidents were underreported. The list also was riddled with errors, as it was pointed out by people who, you know, edit things and look at spelling. San Bernardino spelled wrong. The word attacker spelled wrong almost 12 times. It's a hard word. It does not, a lot of T's in that word. And it did not know which of the attacks the Trump administration believes did receive adequate coverage because they did use the word most. Yeah. Which is not all of them are bad. There were some that were covered well. So what were those? And they didn't mention those. So those would be questions. You know, Today at, at eleven one thirty Eastern uh, press conference with Sean Spicer, he made Spicy Spicer really agitated Can and I just angry suggest and sweaty about. If, if we really wanted to stop this terrorism thing, we probably shouldn't just only look at a list of attacks. Right. But a list of examples where we thwarted attacks. Well, no, it's about the media not covering it. Yeah. You're changing the subject there. I see what you're doing. By thwarting an attack, you actually might find out how to do more of that. You're twisting the story away from the media is bad. <laughs> okay. So sorry. 
Sorry, sorry. Media bad. Okay, go Moving ahead. on. According to the New York Times, CNN editors have serious questions about the credibility of Trump advisor Kellyanne Conway, which led to the cable TV network to decline an offer for her to appear on one of its programs on Sunday. The Trump administration reportedly did, reportedly did not offer to have Vice President Mike Pence on CNN, their show State of the Union Sunday, but he was on CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox News. Every other morning, Sunday yeah. morning channel had the vice president. Not on CNN. Not on CNN. They offered Kellyanne Conway, and they went, uh, we'll pass. Whoa, it's getting dirty. So it's interesting how that works. Parliament, uh, President Donald Trump will not be allowed to address the U.K. Parliament during his uh, eventual state visit. The Independent reports the address by a foreign leader to both houses of Parliament is not an automatic right, the Speaker of House of Commons said. Uh, uh, yesterday. It is an earned honor. Some British politicians, include Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, have demanded Trump's invitation to the visit the, U- the UK be cancelled altogether until he revokes his ban on refugees and travelers from seven Muslim countries. Wow. So he cannot speak to Parliament. They're revoking his uh, if there was an invitation it's not there anymore. Huh. So we'll see how that goes. And finally, the Super Bowl the final numbers, 11 or 111 million people watched Okay, wow. It peaked at 117 million at halftime. Yeah. And they said they, there was a third quarter sort of fade that happened because, you know, I don't think they scored any points in the third quarter, yeah. either team. And uh, then it, it ramped up again, but only to 111 from the 117. So there was a few people that just left. Others now, how does that around. compare? Fifth most watched program of all time. Program meaning, so second or probably lower than Donald Trump's inauguration. Uh, yes, because that's a, a, that was the number history one. of the world. Yes, right. you're right. You're right. This is interesting how we're making this list up now. So so he's number one. Number, yeah. And then – Trump's one. Trump's one. And then uh, what would be to like Obama? I, I, or probably Trump's – I don't know because uh, it didn't compare. Probably his announcement that he was going to run for president would right, be Right, the, the escalator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and then the rest are Super Bowls. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, on down sense. the list. So, yeah, it's, it's the fifth all-time most watched show of all time. Now, That's amazing. a guy broke down exactly how much of the, the, the sport did you actually watch the game. Okay, yeah. Right, so there's 64 minutes on the play clock. Because you, you may have been at this for five hours. But how much did you actually watch of football? Apparently, uh, ball in play, 16 minutes and four seconds. The ball was in play only 16 minutes of your five-hour day. Started at uh, what Four. was that? 4:30 here, so 6:30 yeah. Eastern. Went till 11 almost Eastern. Man, 16 minutes of play the entire time. By the way, notice the Globe Trotter song. Yeah, playing. it's great. It, it fits. It, it really plays into the football angle of this. <laughs> uh, 15 seconds is the longest play of the game. There were 178 plays. The average play being 5.4 seconds long. Wow! Right. And uh, so 130, there was 130 30-second commercials. Each slot was sold for about $5 million. That's $650 million total dollars. Wow. Or $667,000 per second that the ball was in play. Unbelievable. And it says there was one hour, five minutes of commercials, <laughs> right? 16 minutes of play, and then two hours and 28 minutes of other stuff. That's crazy. Instant replays, people standing in huddles. Yeah. So 16 minutes of play, an hour and 15 minutes of commercials? Yeah. Wow. And the story with Putin, 
and the Super Bowl ring. Yeah, what did he do? 2005, the owner of the Patriots went over to Russia as part of a business deal he was on. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as he went over there, he met Vladimir Putin. He goes, here, look at my Super Bowl ring. So Vlad took the ring, put it on, and went, thank you. And then never gave it back. He took his ring. Are you kidding? Is that true? Yeah. I've heard it multiple times. There was a, what do you a, do? There like, was a special before the Super Bowl talking about different Super Bowl memories, and the owner mentioned the story again. He goes, I went to Russia, let Vladimir look at my ring, and then he took it. And then it says, uh, Putin spokesman said in 2013 that the ring was a gift, and the Russian leader would send it to send to Kraft a replacement if he wanted to. The spokesman said Kraft's ring is on display at the Kremlin, if you want to see it. So I think there was just a, a break in the line yeah, of communication yeah, a misunderstanding. There. Yeah. Luckily, so, yeah. he didn't, like, lose his pants. Right. But, yeah, that, that story's been bumping around since, what, 2005. That's but, amazing. So Super Bowl 39 ring, the owner of the team, the, the IGP may have another ring by now. Well, you're but, not going to ask him. You're not going to ask the head of the <laughs> Russian empire. Can I have that back? Oh. You, you're not keeping that, are you? You're, you're accusing him of, of thievery. You say I stole the ring. Yeah. We have vase. <laughs> Can you say that in Russian? Well, that's German. I, know, I want you to say right it in there. Russian. Just say we have ways. It's all the same. <laughs> How would you say that in Russian? It's all the same. It's all the same. Uh, You're the only one that can speak Russian in this room. Yeah. Well, I used to be able to speak Russian very well. Okay. How about now? Well, let's just say у нас возможности. Oh, wow. Mm. Sounded dark. Wow. That sounded dark. Cold hey, War is we, back. We, uh, we've got a brand new sponsor oh. of the show. These are always huge days for us. It's a big, big day. And it's, um, you may have heard of Legos. Yes. There's a new Lego brick that is now up for auction. It's the most expensive Lego sold. It is sold for $15,000. Wow. Wow. I know. I know. One of the only uh, – it's one of only a handful of 14-carat solid gold two-by-four-inch, I guess, bricks. It was made um, – and it had started a bidding frenzy. Originally, it was uh, started out at $11,000 was what it was uh, deemed to be um, – it was bought at $11,000 in 2012. The thing apparently, though, is now going for fifteen grand today. So it's Legos. Who doesn't love a Lego? And who wouldn't love a gold Lego for $15,000? And I believe they can interlock with regular Legos. Yeah. So you can build, you know, with your cheap Legos, a really nice home. And then you can place your gold Lego, 14-carat solid gold Lego, inside that beautiful home. Or, or you could build a Lego safe and then put your it's gold Lego inside the Lego safe. And can I just suggest, whatever you do, don't take it anywhere near Putin. Ooh, He'll go, well, thank you. Well, thank you. That is fantastic. And put it with his Lego set. But uh, apparently um, Lego knows about the quality of our listenership. Hmm. And they know that they're, you know, they've got a lot of money. They might be in the market for gold Lego And pieces. they love Legos. Yeah. Now, usually when we, when we promote a sponsor – the host gets to sample the products yeah. that that were right. Okay, have you no no hmm. no? But they they hmm. say they're probably going to give me some yellow um, Legos soon and a can of uh, gold spray paint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's close. I mean, it's close. Yeah. I'm not even into Legos really. Right. I mean, I wouldn't mind a little gold. 
Right. Just glue some magnets underneath so it adds a little weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little, little heft. Uh, we're going to now play our new sponsor, uh, just a simple little ad. And, uh, humble. Humble little ad. And we're honored. We're honored to have uh, Lego and their 14-carat solid gold line as part of the Matt Townsend Show. A love they will never understand. A wall stacked high keeps us apart. I scream and will never be hurt. Juliet, nous montrerons jamais. Running backwards, backwards running. For 25 years, I have been drowning in the Danube. Bricks of yellow and red crush my soul. My soul is not for sale. Construile. Build it. We live in an age where information is available in near limitless amounts. For many people, the question isn't if they should consume information, but what information should they consume? So how do we avoid an echo chamber and find objective truth when different sources offer alternative facts? Here to discuss the era of fake news and the role that librarians might play in this role is Deputy Librarian of UC Merced, Donald Barclay. Donald uh, is the Deputy University Librarian at the University of California Merced campus, and he's the planning lead for the UC Council of University Librarians. We appreciate you, Donald. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Matt. Talk about um, this fake news thing. I mean, that's it's probably not new to you, but to the rest of the world, now all of a sudden we're finding out that there's a lot of fakery, a lot of truth out there that's being sold as real even research. It's being sold as real true, uh, you know, cited uh, academic studies that aren't even real anymore. How how big of an issue is fake news when it comes to our, our university and our university students? Well, um, yeah, it's the the whole fake news story has kind of blown up really big in the last few months, and it's it's sort of odd when you've been you know doing something for thirty years or so, when suddenly it's on the front page, <laughs> something you've been paying attention to. It's like oh wow, um, but <clears throat> there's a couple of things you know to kind of just sort of define the terms a little bit. Propaganda is really old; it probably probably predates writing, and propaganda is when somebody says something to push a particular point of view, you know, for example, Nazi Germany is a great example of that, you know, yeah, right. the hatred of the Jews, that was propaganda, they had a purpose for that. Fake news is a little different, it's when somebody writes a story just to get attention, and typically to make money from advertising revenue is what you see on the web, and that's not entirely new, um, you know, there are examples from the 19th century of a uh, story, I think it was in the New York World, where somebody had wrote this, written this entirely fake story about someone who'd gone around the world in a hot air balloon way before that was possible and just did it to get people to read the story and, you know, of course, advertisers like high circulation. Hmm. Um, and things like, you know, the, the kind of tabloid newspapers you see when you're checking out of the supermarket have always had, you know, shocking stories about celebrities, you know, and I remember, you know, as a kid, the, one of those would have a story like, you know, JFK didn't die in Dallas. He's alive in a nursing home. You know, totally fake. <laughs> right. 
but they, you know, got people to read their paper and that's right. what they really cared about. So kind of a difference between fake news and propaganda. I think um, what we have to be concerned is because the, the Internet, the web, makes it so much easier for that to be out there. Um, and there's so much more of it. You know, um, back in the day, you could say, well, you know, don't, if you're writing a paper, don't quote the Weekly World News or the National Enquirer because those aren't legitimate sources. And people go, yeah. You know, but nowadays it's coming from all kinds of directions in amounts that, that nobody can, you know, really c- comprehend. You know, billions of web pages out there where people can say anything. And I think the concern is that, you know, sort of the extreme concern would be, those kind of stories that drive someone off the deep end to where somebody commits an act of violence because of something they read that was totally bogus. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing, other concerns are when we damage our health because we, you know, read some fake story that says, you know, mega doses of vitamin D cure cancer, you know, and of course, mega doses of vitamin D can also kill you. So you got to be careful about yeah. that, you know, or um, where we waste a lot of resources tackling some horrible or urgent problem and it turns out it was pretty much a fake thing and we wasted tax dollars and and people's time and our energies that could have been better spent doing something productive on something that that is just a waste of of our resources that's that's the concern and we don't you know um really concerned about people um you know people should have opinions about things and they have a right to to see you know have a way of seeing the world but you don't want people going down rabbit holes, um, like you know, and getting such an echo chamber that they never hear the other side of a story. So right. I think that's that's the concern. Well, and it's also, I mean, it seems interesting with the whole climate argument because it's so scientifically based, and mm-hmm. you know, all the, the majority of researchers in the world or doctors in the world agree that da 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 da. But our climatologists agree. But mm-hmm. I mean, what I've learned just getting a little PhD is that you, there's the claims are really important, right? And um, what do they agree on, really? And yeah. do what does agree mean? And mm-hmm. why would it matter if you know if a professor of English is saying it versus a mm-hmm. professor of climatology? Yeah. And so. And really, is there a causal effect? And I mean, there's a lot of terms we use in academics that are really hard, I think, for just the average person to to differentiate. So, um, so there is there is a difference. And I like the fact that you helped us through propaganda, fake news. But then sometimes it's just I've seen studies that were misused yeah. or mis miscited or misquoted. Right. Well, what often happens, unfortunately, with science is, and science is kind of a special area because of you know. The first thing about science is the human endeavor, and it's not perfect. There are no perfect people except, you know, librarians and radio show hosts. Um, <laughs> That's right. So um, people, are, people make mistakes. So just because it's science doesn't mean it's perfect. But um, science does have a way of correcting itself, which is important. Yeah. You know, and when science is allowed to flourish, you know, without being politically restrained, without, you know, being confined, you know, again, I'll use a classic example, Nazi Germany. Nazi German science was not very good science for the most part because, you know, they had certain, they constrained what people could discover. Um, But um, when science is allowed to work properly, it corrects itself. I'll give you a great example. Linus Pauling was a very important 
scientist. He, he studied biology. He made some really important discoveries that were really crucial to human health. Late in his life, he got on his kick about vitamin C being, you know, this cure-all for everything. And because he was Linus Pauling, people listened to him. But what happened was science was allowed to work, and scientists tested his ideas about vitamin C. And at the end of the day, they said, it doesn't matter that this guy is Linus Pauling. It doesn't matter he's a Nobel Prize winner. He's wrong. The research says he's wrong. And so that's when science works well, because it's not about the individual right. or what anybody thinks. It's when things are proposed, and the scientific method then tests it and tests it and tests it again. And there's a, you know, there are problems with scientific communication in that um, scientists who, who study other people's work aren't given as much prestige as people who you know, make new discoveries. Um, the, uh, um, so you know, it's harder to get a, a replication study published than a, a, a new study. Mm. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a human thing. You know, people, people want to have prestige and be rewarded for their work. So there, there are issues with science research, that, again, because it's a human endeavor. Um, but as a science, it's, science, but the science itself, it, I mean, the the very – because there is a competition in the world of science where right. if, if you're going to present a paper and, and publish a paper in a peer-reviewed article, it's it's going to have to face some testing. Yes, it should, yes. And sometimes it doesn't. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. That's, well, it should be tested, but it's not always because there's so much being published. Right. And, know, yeah. The, the resources to, to test everything um, – but the the other thing is that um, besides the testing of science is that oftentimes when we as average people read something about science, we don't read the article. We read somebody's report on right. the article, a right. Journal Street report. So maybe the paper said, you know, um, well, you know, X milligrams of vitamin D seem to have an effect on this one kind of tumor in a frog. But then it gets reported as vitamin D, new cure-all for cancer. That's right. not what the scientists said, because science moves by little bitty steps. You know, it's not like the movies, you know, Spider-Man or whatever movie where you get bitten by a radioactive spider <laughs> and some magical thing happens. Science is little incremental steps. And, but, it, you know, people want a story that's more interesting than somebody discovered something that's a little bit interesting and it may lead to something else interesting. This, is a, this seems to be a really important um, Point because when we, we've had you on the show before talking in the past about so what what's really going to happen to libraries when we don't need you know the Dewey Decimal System is not the only thing you're teaching anymore and you don't even need to warehouse the materials because they can just all be done digitally. Right. But one of the points you brought up is um, literacy and informational yeah. literacy. So mm-hmm. so maybe walk us into that realm okay. that, that really library science is more now. It seems like, or, or could be going more now, into helping people differentiate between propaganda, fake news, real science, replication of studies, yeah. and, and real information literacy. Right. Well, it um, librarians have been doing that uh, in the United States, you know, since the 19th century. Right. Actually, doing work with teaching people, and that was mostly focused on how to use libraries because that was the information source. You had, um, a library is this building with books, and you have to learn how to work it to get your information out of it. <laughs> so, um, but starting really in the 1960s as higher education really boomed in the United States, this role of teaching people how to use information expanded. And in the 70s, uh, the term information literacy was coined. And information literacy is a complex thing, and, and you'll see different definitions of it. But basically, it's about 
teaching people how to access information, how to evaluate the quality of the information, how to internalize the information, and then apply it in whatever they're doing, a paper or a presentation or their own lives. And, and the goal really is to try to create people who can use information effectively in their scholarly, professional, personal, and civic lives so that people can, you know, take information and make good decisions. And I think the thing that's different today than it was 30 years ago is just the sheer amount of information coming at you and the fact that you can get into these bubbles where you don't have to hear you know, um, multiple sides of a story. Even, you know, I, I remember back when the nightly news was a thing that everybody watched, um, when everybody knew who Walter Cronkite and Huntley and Brinkley were, um, you know, there was a lot of concern about was that news bias? Was it giving the whole story? Hmm. But compared to something, you know, some of the sites I don't need to name, <laughs> we all know, you know, the, the nightly news with Huntley and Brinkley or Walter Cronkite was a bastion of openness and you know, looking at all sides of the question compared to a lot of places we can go now and just hear right. one side of a story. And so what I think, it, you know, the role, a role for libraries and public libraries can be part of this, school libraries, academic libraries, is kids should really be starting at a very early age, you know, first grade, talking about, thinking about the things that you're told, the things that you see. And, and a great example is, you know, you could, a teacher could do this. You could show children a commercial, a TV commercial for a toy that really exaggerates how much fun and what you can do with this toy, and then hand the children the actual toy and have them play with it, and then compare their experience to what they saw in the commercial. Mm. You know, was it as fun? Was the commercial honest? Was it truthful? Well, not 100%. Bingo. Right. You're learning. You're becoming media literate. You're becoming information literate. And we need to we really need to have that I think be part of education starting early and going all the way through um, you know through graduate school and it can't be just librarians doing it because it's a bigger issue you know you can't just do it by oh we we ha we went to the library today and spent half an hour while this guy talked about information literacy and right. we're done right it's really got to be experienced that you experience that you experience all the way through school and something you learn to apply in your life because at the end of the day, you know, when you walk into a ballot booth or, you know, you're, you're making decisions about should I buy a green car or does that really help? Should I, you know, recycle? Should, you know, all these decisions we have to make in our lives that are based on information, we have to make the best decisions we can on the best information we have. Mm, and I, so I think good. the other thing, too, is that an important part of information literacy is being able to really think about your biases and be willing to say, you know, what I thought before, I, the facts are telling me something has changed here. And maybe what I always thought isn't, the, you know, the actual, the way it is. Mm -hmm. And how to, allow, how to allow that in without it being so, you know, disruptive to your identity and your existence. Because that's one of the things I, I'm always amazed at is, you know, a lot of academics, theirs is about learning, not necessarily about the one thing they learned. Their identity has to be on constantly growing and learning their information. Interesting stuff, folks. We'll take a break more with Donald Barclay when we come back about emo or informational literacy and the power of learning and uh, how we can teach it to our kids. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back. Today we're talking about making our children more informationally literate, helping them see through the propaganda that's out there, the fake news, understanding science and maybe the scientific methodology better. Um, joining us to help us uh, through this crazy world of information is Donald Barclay. And Donald, Donald is a an actual, um, he's a librarian. In fact, if we look at it, He's called the Deputy University Librarian at the University of California Merced Campus, and he's the planning lead for the UC, University of California Council of University Librarians. We've had him on the show before. Um, It's just fun to talk to somebody in the know. Donald, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me, Matt. And again, it's funny. I mean, for us, informational literacy is something that we're like, yeah, we need a whole new field. We need to be having this whole new field. But the reality is, Library science has been teaching this for years. Mm-hmm. We just need to see that you're more than the Dewey Decimal System. Yes. And, or the Library of Congress. Yeah, or the Library of Congress. <laughs> exactly. You're, like, we've categorized you into either the small, tiny little library in a school or you're the Library of Congress. Talk about um, the – I mean I, I have a really – my wife's a, a PE teacher and the way they do school now is the kids go to their classes – but then they take a break every week to go to music, and they have a tech teacher and an art teacher and a PE teacher, and they go twice a week to all these different things. But it seems like we need an information literacy focus. It, to me, that seems just as important as even music, tech, art, or PE. Yeah. It's well, life. I it's th- our future. Yeah, I, I certainly agree, and I think that you know, in a perfect world, you know, for me, the, um, all teachers would be thinking about that as yeah. part of their course. You know, science teachers would just not be teaching biology or chemistry. They'd be including it. Now, this is why, you know, this is a good journal article, and here's why, and, and here's how this information gets created. I think a really important thing for people to understand is you need to understand how information is created. It's not, it doesn't just come out of the sky. It's created by human beings who have flaws and biases and ways of doing things. And, you know, um, and even within academia, the way a science article is created is different than the way a book about the history of 16th century France is created, you know, or um, a book about uh, archaeology is created. They have different methods mm. in different fields. You know, there, there's some similarities, but I think the more students understand about how this is generated and what its purpose is, the better it is they're able to look at things and go, okay, I see why this was created. For example, a good example is The Onion, you know, the satirical online newspaper. Yeah. It's created to make people laugh. That's the purpose. And if you understand that and you understand they're trying to be funny, some people think they're funny, some people don't. <laughs> but if you understand that's their purpose, then you go, okay, well, I get it. I, I get what this article is, and I understand I'm not supposed to take it seriously. And one of the things that happens is there's not just The Onion. There's lots and lots of satirical sites out there, and sometimes people take those articles out of context, and they think they're serious. <laughs> right. And, and, and they spread them like this is a true story. Right, right, yes. You know, so, you know, uh, The Onion might have a satirical article about, you know, um, President Obama spends the week at a mosque praying with the head of ISIS and makes a joke out of it, and then it gets spread as a true story. And, and people, you know, unfortunately actually believe that. Right. Uh, or, you know, same thing's happening to Donald Trump, and, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not like one side owns the truth and the other side doesn't. Um, it, you know, there's no monopoly on lying or truth. It's, it happens all over. 
Does it have to have – it seems like you have to have a certain basis of just knowledge. Um, I learned it in my graduate school that you you have to know the theories. You have to kind of know the general area you're studying. So do people just need to eventually grow up and know the difference between an ABC News and a CNN versus Russian television news versus – and understand uh, versus The Onion – and do we just need enough experience in all of this, or is this taught? Well, it can, it can be taught, and I think that you know it's something that could be certainly high school students could be taught um, to understand the difference. Yeah, um, I remember when I was in junior high, we read um, this. We read two newspaper accounts of the Hungarian Revolution, and one was written by I think somebody from the BBC or or, or the Times of London, and the other one was written by Pravda. Mm. And and they were stories about the same event, but they were very very different because mm-hmm. the Pravda story was talking about counter revolutionary bandits trying to destroy the good of the world, and the BBC one was talking about Russian troops, you know, crashing the Hungarian Revolution, and you know we were told to think about that, you know, and and the perspective of these authors and which one did we believe? Yeah, and you know what were the and neither one of them was perfectly true, but the, you know, one of them was clearly had a much more political purpose than the other, so. You can use things like that. People can learn to to, to do that. Um, certainly, people can be thought to do things like consider the source, which is simply, okay, where did this come from? Somebody just dropped this on my Facebook page. Where did they get it? Yeah. You know, did it come from Breitbart? Did it come from Huffington Post? Mm-hmm. Did it come from the Deseret News? Yeah. What's the source? Okay, that tells me something. I can also check out the author. Is it a journalist? Is it a scientist? Is it a politician? You know, uh, are they affiliated with a certain you know, institute or religion or whatever. Um, another really great thing to do is um, if they have links, click on the links and see if they actually support what's being said. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, reading beyond the headline, you know, uh, vitamin D cures cancer. Wow, that's really interesting. And I start reading it and it's like, no, that's not <laughs> what this says. It's a story about somebody discovered vitamin D maybe stops tumors in certain frogs. Right, right. That, that's a different story. That's different. Um, also, you know, checking with expert sources, um, you know, your local librarian, for example, or, you know, if you're a young person, you have a teacher, you can talk to them about, is this true? Um, Plus, just too good to be true, right? I mean, yeah, if it's well, just too, if it's just weird, yeah. if it's too good to be true, yeah. doubt it. Yeah. Make them well, prove it to you. There's, a, there's another one, you know, your own prejudices. And here's a good example for me. So I, I read something that said, okay, Crime rate in the United States has really dropped in the last 30 years. And that's true. You know, as far as we know, that's right. true, unless you're a total conspiracy buff. Crime <laughs> rate is really down. Good thing. And this article is saying a possible reason for that is we've gotten rid of leaded gas. What? Because lead, you know, makes people crazy. your brain. Yeah. <laughs> now, that appeals to me on so many levels. Yeah. I like that crime is down. I like that doing something good for the environment is having this positive. Right. Effect. I want to believe that. Is it true? Well, I probably should do some work and find out it's true before I go around posting that on Facebook or, you know, telling my children, oh, yeah, that's true. You know, leaded gas was the reason crime was so bad 40 years ago. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, you can have all kinds of things that appeal to you. Yeah. An- another, this is a really good one. So back in the 70s, somebody published an article. It was a scholarly article which said that since 1950, the number of U.S. children killed by firearms has doubled. Killed okay, by firms? What? 
U.S. children killed by what? By firearms. Firearms. Okay, yeah. Okay. So Has it doubled. doubled from 1950 to like 1975. Right. That got republished as it had doubled every year. Oh, boy. So if one, only one child had died in 1950, <laughs> within 20 years, the number of dead American children would be larger than the population of the United States. <laughs> it's an but, epidemic. Right. Yeah, but that got republished. Yeah. Again yep. and again and again, because people wanted to believe that. Uh-huh. You know, uh, it, it's beyond academic. Uh, it's beyond an epidemic. It'd be a holocaust. <laughs> it would be, wouldn't it? I yeah. mean, that's the thing is we 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 really are looking to validate our own assumptions, our own prejudice. Um, we only have about two minutes left, sure. but I want to know what your take as a librarian, as a scientist, um, about Wikipedia, because oh. I mean, my kids are like, let's just look it up. Everything and Wikipedia always in the top five or six. So right. is, is that is that a reliable resource? It can be. It can be. It's like any resource. You have to question it. You know what's the purpose? Wikipedia tends to be really good on very you know scientific or esoteric topics. Not so good on pop culture stuff. I wouldn't go to Wikipedia to read about Donald Trump right now. <laughs> I'm sure they block down the article. You know, not letting people edit it. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you want to read about quantum physics or you know, things like that. Those articles are usually great. But the thing I would caution is, you know, consider the source, consider that multiple people can edit it. You know, the Wikipedia articles often have links to more, well, to very reliable sources. Mm -hmm. So check out those links and see if this person is citing a source, go check out the source and see if it, if it corresponds to what the person said. If the person doesn't cite a source, if a person says, the number of children killed by firearms in the U.S. has doubled every year since 1950, and there's no source, you've got to really question that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe even – and don't spread it. Don't, don't push it. Well, we appreciate you, Donald. This is great information for all of us. Uh, we'll have you back on. I love talking about this with you because it, it's never going to end. It really – this is just going to get more and more complicated as marketers even get better at, at setting it up. Um, Remember, it could be everything. Journalists don't have to be journalists anymore, but they can be called journalists. Scientists don't have to be scientists, um, but they can call themselves a scientist. Let's start looking to the sources and, and investigate a little bit more. We'll take a break. When we come back, our own Caitlin Thomas will be joining us to talk about comeback stories. We saw one comeback in the Super Bowl. We'll find out some more up next. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Sunday, we had the Super Bowl, which is one of the most watched events on TV. We found out it was up to 117, 117 million viewers watched that. This year's game had everything and every one of us on the edge of our seats as we watched the Patriots making one of the greatest comebacks ever seen in a Super Bowl uh, history. It's uh, all the talk for everybody the last uh, few days. But there's more comeback stories than just that. For some reason, we all love a good comeback story. So Caitlin Thomas is here this morning to share with us some fun comeback stories that will make us all feel nice and cozy inside. Good morning. Hello. How are you? Happy Tuesday. I'm good. Happy Tuesday to you. Pretty good morning, don't you think? It's a great morning. It's the best morning I've had today. 
Good. I'm so glad. Um, I like your uh, headband, your polka dot headband. Thank you. I'm wearing – I know. I walked into the, the other studio with Terry, and I sat down. He said, whoa, that's a lot of pink. You're wearing a lot. You're sporting a lot so, of pink that today. That sounded yeah. exactly like him, by the way. In fact, can you say I've that one more time? I've worked for a long time. I don't know if I can do that again. Whoa. <laughs> whoa, that's a lot of pink. That's, wow. That was him. I've worked totally. here for two years. Do you Channel-y. know that I've been here almost two years? Anyway. Have you really? So comeback stories. Yeah. Sunday like was five. a very typical. A lot longer than that. American comeback comeback stories. Um, There's a lot of good comeback stories. I mean, whether you were cheering for the Patriots or not, you have to admit, like, that was pretty... It was pretty cool. I wasn't cheering for the Patriots, and it wasn't cool. I was a little bit upset. I wasn't cheering for them either, and I'm not a huge Tom Brady fan, but... The comeback story is so like really that could have cool. been in a movie. And, and by the way, the comeback stories aren't even just in, poli- in they can be in pol- politics. They can just be in life. They can be um, in life. They can be in business. I mean, yeah, my little sister is when she was in high school was suffered great depression, anxiety, and was suicidal and in a hospital. And now she is three years later going out to serve an LDS mission all by herself. That's so. see a comeback, comeback. story. That's she made cool. a comeback. You know, Beth, Bethany Hamilton, remember her? The surfer who lost her uh, shark bitter her yes. off? So that's a major comeback story. She was 13 years old when that happened. But, you know, within a couple of years, she returned back to surfing and made a customized board and is still surfing. And now today. she's... And again, with, without an arm. Yeah. And everybody looks at her like... Yeah, she's a, one of the, she's a world-renowned so cool. surfer. Totally. Comeback stories. Um, here's one that I didn't know. Her name's Diana Nyad. Diana Nyad. Nyad. Swimmer. Yeah. She was the first person to swim the 110 miles from Cuba to Florida. Yeah. Without a shark cage at 64 years old. She tried to run to swim this race multiple times and failed because of different complications. And finally at 64, she she swam the whole thing. Yeah, she was getting stung by jellyfish. They were Yeah, they said jellyfish and lightning strikes. Like they had to stop the race cuz the lightning and stuff. She did at 64. That is Are you kidding me? That is amazing. That's and amazing. you think she would have learned but she came before Bethany to swim in a shark cage. Yeah, she didn't need it, right? Yeah. She didn't need it. She still has both arms. So. See, and at 64, are you kidding me? I know. It's amazing. That's I mean, a comeback. I mean, some comebacks don't happen when we're right. younger. Sometimes they happen later on in life, and that's, totally. that's so cool. That's way cool. Kyle Maynard, um, he was born with a condition known as congenital amputation. So he has all – both arms and both legs are gone when, like, when he was born. Uh, but he's the first quadruple amputee to successfully ascend Mount Kilimanjaro without any prosthetics. Are you serious? I'm not kidding. He made this happen by taping pieces of bicycle tire to the ends of his limbs to protect him while he scaled the mountain. So I kid you not, this is a real story. I found it yesterday. So he put like tires so on his arm, yeah, on like his the tire material, on his arms, and, his, and on the bottom, like on his, his legs, and then he worked his way up the mountain. Yeah, that would take forever. Yeah, I mean your normal stride. A quadruple amputee. Unbelievable. Come back. He was, a, you know, a person that was had. All the reasons in the world to be mad, and up. he didn't. So cool. It's so cool. I mean, and then you've got your your athletes, Michael Jordan, right? He's yeah. Cut multiple times, and then you know went on to play pro basketball, but but took a break for a while and yeah. went and played baseball. <laughs> you know, but then he got um, an MLB player strike record. Um, so then he turned around and went back to went back to basketball. Please tell me he's going to make a baseball comeback. Dude, I don't know. He's got some pretty cool comebacks. So. You know what? Let the man retire. Just it's let a pretty cool retire. story, though. I mean, just, it's a story about not giving up on your dreams cool. and the things that you love to do. And he tried stuff, too, right? I mean, it's yeah, he with tried all a of lot these, of it would be easier to just quit. 
Right, he could have quit basketball in high school when he got cut from the high school team, mm-hmm. but he didn't. In school. He but see, there's it. something that drives these people. Yeah, there's something internally. And I think that some people are born with that drive, but I think that we can all learn from it Absolutely. and decide that we want to become that. Um, one of my favorite um, actor comeback stories, right, is Robert Downey Jr. Mm. Um, he's, I mean, we all know him from the Iron Man, but before that, he had a pretty shady history with drugs um, yeah. and alcohol and right. some stuff with the law. And so his career took a turn for the worse, and I think he ended up getting a DUI and got yeah, put in jail. Yeah, he got in big trouble. Some bad things. Um, so people started thinking, oh, well, you know, he's gone. He's done for. Um, but he decided to come back. He went to rehab and cleaned up his life. And You we, know who had a big no, part awesome. to do with that was a woman. Yeah. A woman in his life. A woman in He married really? her. Oh, I was going to say his mother. She shaped him up. See? But it's pretty a cool partner. because he, I mean, he had made some bad, those were choices that he yeah. had made, like, it's different than the amputee who was born with this situation. These were bad choices that this person had made, but he decided to not wallow in that self pity and cool. and fix himself and it's, do better. We seem to like we seem to like the fall. So a lot of people probably were way into the fall of Robert Downey, mm-hmm. and then we like we like the we like phoenix watching, to rise do, from the do, ashes. We appreciate that because I think we see a lot of ourselves in those people when we see that happen, and we hope that. We can do the same thing. Yep. And when we see humanity rise up, right, we get cool. all inspired. I love so. that song, Rise Up. <laughs> Are you kidding me? By the way, one more I was thinking about, about with Elizabeth Smart, who was kidnapped. Oh, she's phenomenal. And I think she was kidnapped for like nine months. for nine months. And then and came out and is now to do an these advocate. Just, yeah. yeah, and she's an advocate for women's you know, self-defense and so sexual cool. assault and all of these amazing things. And she's a public speaker, but she's also married. She's married. Oh, has a great life. Has And is happy. And it's See, just amazing. Caitlin, you brought joy. You brought peace. That's what I'm trying to do. Everybody out there, rise up. Overcome. It's a good Tuesday. Thanks. Smile a little bit. Caitlin Thomas is her name. She brings joy. <laughs> we'll take a break. We'll come back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the party, friends. Dr. Matt here along with uh, Terry South, Jeffrey Simpson, the gang. We're all here. We're here for you. Also in a bit, uh, Julie K. Nelson will be joining us. The bomb mom, we call her. The Child Whisperer, she will uh, teach us how to apologize. So if you struggle with that, it's time to learn how to apologize. I loved Sean Spicer or Melissa McCarthy's apology <laughs> that she, she sure, made on yeah, behalf of the then, press and then she to her, and, and then, then she rejected she, it. She rejected <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, that Spicer, that I think is probably the funniest thing I've seen out of Saturday Night Live for a very long time. One thirty Eastern. Press conference today. Press he, conference. He didn't have one yesterday because he was flying with the president to Florida to yeah. U.S. Central Command. Now they're flying back. He'll have a press conference today. That we'll get to fun. hear his response. We'll see if he picks up the podium. You'll just know that it's going to be all about that sketch. That's right. The whole meeting will be about that sketch. Will, will he walk <laughs> into the room and just launch into it, or does he wait for the question? I think I would control it by by making a statement about it. You know how easily I wait for the question. You no. know how easily he could keep things light and put people on his side. Just bring out a cup of gum and just down it. Oh, that would be funny. And that would just break up the and room. And even if he didn't, if he just had the cup of gum and left it there, everyone yeah. would be laughing. Yeah. 
just take it as a funny. You just got to laugh. It's just a laugh. You, you can't win going after him because they'll just come at you the next week. That would be a yeah. huge, so, huge step in the right direction for them being able to take, take just a joke. A, just take a joke. The problem is I think, I think individually they all could. But then when they go behind the door and Donald's like, why are you letting him put you down like that? Then, I mean, apparently of, of the one hour of television Donald Trump has to see every day, it's Sean's – it's not even an hour anymore. It's 40 minutes. It's Sean Spicer's press meeting. Well, the, He watches it every day. He watches that. He gets a little bit of morning news and yeah. then he watches apparently Don Lemon on CNN yeah. and other shows, but that one specifically, they said. So if you know your boss is watching your job every day and you know the very first time he went out, he was also critiqued. For what he was wearing. That's why he has those nice, snappy new suits. <laughs> but the mere fact that they made fun of him chewing gum, I mean, uh, you can't win. Because now yeah. he's getting it He's getting it from the right and the left. He's getting it from above him, the boss. He probably goes home and his wife's like, ah, oh, Sean, pick oh, up spicy. the garbage. Spicy. <laughs> spicy. <laughs> they call him Old Spicy. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great antiperspirant. Hey, um. We'll be talking about apologizing, also get into some of the empty news, just some of the information that you didn't even know you needed to know, but you're going to know it because we provide it because that's what we do. We're just people that give. Also, um, we will be meeting with our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation, find out what's coming up on their show, see if they have gotten over the Super Bowl yet. I know they were seriously impacted by it. Plus a hero story. We always end with a hero story. All that... To celebrate, by the way, February 7th, wave all of your fingers at your neighbor's day. Not just one finger, because mm. you just wave your index finger. That's like someone's done something wrong. You wave two fingers, it's peace. Three fingers, Boy Scouts of America. Mm. Four fingers, don't know what that is. Probably means four. I thought, I thought two fingers in France was an insult. Isn't that an insult? Because Probably, yeah. they used to cut off those fingers so that you couldn't use the bow and arrow. Oh, see, wow. wow. Very good. Apparently, thumbs up in Iraq means something completely different. So don't do that. Don't be doing that. So uh, maybe universally, if you use your entire hand across the globe, yeah. you're not offending anyone. That's right. Just a gentle hi. And with a smile? Smile, smile, eyes. Give a little eye, okay. eye contact. This is making more sense. What we're trying to do is help you connect to your neighbors because we care. We care. And uh, we also don't want you to start an incident. All that. International or otherwise. Mm-hmm. No. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Donald Trump's pick for labor secretary employed an undocumented maid, reports the Huffington Post. Andrew Putzer, CEO of the fast food chains Hardee's and Carl's Jr., reportedly told the Senate and Trump administration officials that he had hired an undocumented woman as household help. Under previous administrations, this type of admission might have been... That was it. You were done. ...into the confirmation process. Two of Bill Clinton's attorney general picks withdrew from confirmation hearings after it was revealed that they had both hired undocumented nannies. But some Republicans told the Huffington Post that Trump's picks would likely be judged by different standards than their predecessors and that Putzer's admission might not necessarily end his cabinet bid. Wrong. It's just like, meh. Good. No big deal. We're growing up, maybe. On, well, now, he did pay the taxes. He did, when he realized what the problem was, ended her employment and offered to help her gain citizenship. Okay. Do the, you know, do the proper yeah. things you needed to do. Yeah, that's good. But still, that would end the process in the past. So right. maybe it's 
a sign of progress. Yeah, Who knows? That's good. Or maybe it's just Trump and the rules don't matter anymore. <laughs> Who knows? On Monday evening, the Department of Justice filed a 15-page brief defending President Trump's executive order on immigration. And moments later, it was announced the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals will hear a challenge to his travel ban. It's not a ban, but, you know, it's not a, a ban. ban. Travel, travel. Today, thing. last week, a federal judge temporarily suspended parts of the travel ban. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals will listen to oral arguments during a hearing conducted by telephone, 6 p.m. Eastern tonight. The fate of that executive order hangs in the balance. I see go. a countdown a clock already showing up on Very CNN. Very big deal. Does the president have the ability to legislate for the safety of America? That's the Trump's position. See what happens. I think they also have a countdown for four years from now. Already going. <laughs> they, they could. Uh, a raid on an al-Qaeda compound in Yemen on January 29th failed its primary objective of capturing or killing Qasim El-Rahim, the leader of al-Qaeda in the Arab- Arabian Peninsula, military officials told NBC. The raid killed one U.S. Navy SEAL, 14 al-Qaeda fighters, and a number of civilians, including an 8-year-old girl. But as the uh, al-Rimi is reportedly, the guy they were targeting got away. Oh, boy. Right? The, the Trump uh, White House said it was a rousing success. It was a successful operation by all standards. Yeah. But the military is now saying that we didn't even get our primary objective. Oh, he snuck away. Wrong. So then the question is, hmm, what's a, what's a success when it comes to the White House? Well, they dropped a bomb and it did explode. And, and Al <laughs> Remy, the guy that got away, went on social media and said, the fool of the White House got slapped at the beginning of his road in your lands. Wow. That's... Them are so, fighting words. So they're, they're mocking the, the president after missing... The primary target. The primary target is mocking the president. Oh, boy. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, and finally, fortune cookies. Love them. Oh, I had a great fortune the other night. The man who is uh, known as one of the world-renowned fortune cookie writers is stepping down. <laughs> Hold on. Confucius? There's, there's a world-renowned fortune cookie I it writer. Was Confucius. Apparently. For 30 years, Don Lau has served as the chief fortune writer at Wonton, at Wonton Foods, which bills itself as the largest manufacturer of fortune cookies, noodles, and other Chinese staples. He's now stepping down. He goes, I used to write 100 a year, but I've only written two or three a month for Slowing the past down. year. Well, you run out of wisdom. And he says the reason? Writer's block. Yeah. <laughs> In the 80s, when Lau first landed the role at the Queens and Brooklyn-based company, cookie fortunes were, well, uh, fortuitous, he says. Uh, he goes, a dr- and then they give you an example. A dream you have will come true, right? But yeah. today, he says, the premium is on new inspirational sayings that promote yogi, teabag-style well-being fortunes. Hmm. The pressure led Lau to hand his soothsaying responsibilities to another employee, James Wong, a nephew of the company's founder. Lau will continue to serve as Wonton Foods' chief financial officer, but he will not continue as their chief fortune cookie <sighs> writer. Can I, loss. can I read one in his honor? Yeah, please. Any troubles you may have will pass very shortly. Really? That's true for all of us in here. And Sean, too, because he just walked in the room. Wow, that's um, that's a loss. That's a loss. I mean, you know, you, you lose Maya Angelou. Yep. You lose these great writers, but then you lose the, the fortune, fortune cookie, cookie writer. Lau. It's yeah. yeah. a big deal. Lau is right. Say his name, man. I have, I have a casting <laughs> update for you. Yes. 
Saturday Night Live. Okay. We have Alec Baldwin. Right. As Trump. Yeah. We have Melissa McCarthy uh, as Sean Spicer. Yeah. What about Rosie O'Donnell as uh, Bannon. Bannon? As Steve Bannon. But see, I don't think anybody knows Bannon's personality, so it won't be as funny. Would it? Well, like, because you need to know him. Someone mentioned it on Twitter, and she responded on Twitter saying that she stands ready to serve. <laughs> she will serve her country. So this isn't coming from Lauren Michaels. This no. is coming from some. There, that on Twitter that there is a, 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 mo, a mo, movement, you'd call it, right? Oh, all, yeah. It's all about movements now. There is a movement on Twitter to get Rosie. So we'll have Alec Baldwin, Melissa McCarthy, and Rosie all in these can you Can you imagine what Donald Trump's reply to that would be? Absolutely. Because I'm going to – you're a monster. <laughs> I'm going to go. It wouldn't well, be very presidential. The other would be that she would be able to get kind of even with all the comments he's made about her. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I think it won't be funny. Because do you know what Bannon's personality is like? I think there's... Uh, he is on Time Magazine. Right. And no one knows enough of his mannerisms to know if they're yeah. even close. So that's why they did the Grim Reaper over the weekend. <laughs> See, <laughs> that might be funnier is just to keep him as the Grim Reaper. Over Trump's shoulder. But uh, Melissa McCarthy's hilarious because everyone has seen Spicer just do watch the him, dance. Watch him there, yeah. They didn't get the, quite the, the, the pulsating vein in his forehead right, yeah. but... But there, what I loved every once in a while is when she just pick up her podium and start moving. Fantastic. Do you think he'll try to do that? He goes, first off, yeah. it's incorrect. This podium is bolted to the floor. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, um, some empty news for you because that was not empty. That was real full, news. Full of depth. Empty news. Um, did you hear about the woman that got a snake stuck in her ear? The pictures are awesome. I saw it. It's horrible. <laughs> and uh, her name is Ashley Glaw. She owns a ball python called Bart. She names her, she named her python Bart. It's a good name for a snake. Great name for a snake. Yeah. He likes to slither around as snakes do. Unfortunately for Ashley and for Bart, the slippery little man, male I guess, not a man, male, <laughs> decided to wiggle onto the owner's uh, neck area. Yeah. And then the woman has gauged ears, so she has the bigger earring, and apparently it then, I guess, pushed out the gauge and then slithered through her ear. I believe Mm. she had the the gauge out. Yeah, okay. And so the gauge goes into your lower sort of earlobe. And it and, and it, it, and it it's it a really out. wide hole. So you've seen these people that wear these big gauges in their ears, and the snake then slithered through that hole. Curious. It was just being curious. Right. And, and um, but you know the snake was not. It wasn't big, but it was probably two inches around. Yeah. And it just hanging out of her earlobe. Uh-huh. It was bad. <laughs> and anyway, it then, it then got stuck. Yeah. So she couldn't pull it back because of the scales. So and it started ripping the the hole in her ear, and she it just got ugly really fast. So she drove herself. I think she drove herself to the hospital, mm. and according to the video I watched, and um, she they then had to get it out. Yeah, and they had to stretch her lobe a little bit more, and slowly get the snake out. I heard that she's going to be the new model for all of the American Horror Story posters because it always has a snake coming out of the ear, or out yeah. of the mouth. You know, you, we'll post her. it. We'll post it on our site at Doctor Matt Show. It's it's something you're going to want to see. That's one you're going to want to share. Right? Should we? That oh, that one's coming up. There's but, another one. Okay. In a few days, we'll have one that's just there's really a, gross. You'll want to see the video of it. Um, 
Anyway, they're both fine. Bart is resting comfortably. Right. He's had some mice or something. And Ashley, you know, just has a little bit bigger hole in her ear. Maybe shopping for some new gauges. Yeah. She just moved up two sizes. Now, would you be lopsided on your gauges at that point? Would you need to? I I think you're not going to want to go lopsided or eventually you'll have cervical problems and then eventually back problems. Right. So So maybe you'll need some. The chiropractor uh, would say always balance your gauges. Right. Okay. If you're into gauging. Right. Yeah, sure. Which I don't get because it seems painful. It's a gradual process. Some people run a marathon. Yeah. Some people gauge. Yeah. You know? Sure. She's going to be able to do all sorts of party tricks now. Yeah. True. With that gauge. Crazy. But you know what? That's, we're glad nobody died. And we're glad the snake is fine. Yeah. Snake's good. By the way, what I was I was asking my wife what kind of person, you know, like if you're dating somebody and they have a ball python yes does it scare you that to me would scare me if my wife's like hey have you seen my pet and i'm like no what is it, a cat or a dog are you a dog person no it's it's a ball python that would scare me am i a wuss why would it scare you it's a python it's not like she's throwing this animal at you or something well i know but like you know you can Play with their dog. You can play with the yeah, cat. Yeah. You don't. I don't. I wouldn't want to touch the snake. Well, then maybe you make some relationship decisions at that point. Yeah, now it's time. Yeah. That might be a deal breaker. I don't want to judge, but I'm just not into snakes. Um, we'll take a break. Let's come back. When we come back, we're talking how to apologize. You feel like you're very good at that? It's hard for some. We'll give you the tools you need to give a sincere apology. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. That music can only mean one thing. That means the Bomb Mom is here. And it's Ballet Day today, And it's Ballet Day, celebrating the violent ballet. That was like, that was the ballet taking place in a war zone. Sad. Joining us, um, who better to walk us through life but Julie K. Nelson. She is the bomb mom. She is a professor at Utah Valley University and has a degree in marriage, family, and human development, teaches classes such as applied parenting and marriage and relationship skills. Also uh, has a wonderful website if you go to a spoonful of parenting.com. And apparently my I have my own soundtrack, too. Yeah, you do. There's your soundtrack. Isn't that nice? <laughs> That's really nice. You're Thanks living large. That. Thank you for providing that for me. <laughs> Today you're going to walk us through um, – how do we put this? Through a, a proper apology. Yeah. we A lot of us mess it up when we try to apologize and we don't do it right and we create an even bigger mess. Yeah. And so I'm here to help share that secret sauce What if you're sure? looking for. What if you're convinced that – you're not the one that needs to be apologizing. <laughs> you are. You're off the wrong foot. <laughs> because, I mean, really, that's the battle of the ego, right? Yeah. The ego's like, well, I would love to offer an apology if I did something wrong. Exactly. See, you're already in a place that's not ready to apologize. Yeah. So, and, and a lot of us just dismiss it off really like casually like that. We, we do it just because we want the other person to get off our back or stop being mad at us. And so, like, let's say that you... Um, you, okay, Matt, you come home and there's that leftover lasagna in the refrigerator mm. and you're like, oh, that was so good. So good. And so you just like scarf it all down. Yeah, yeah. And then your wife comes into the refrigerator to prepare the leftovers for dinner and it's all gone. And she turns to you and goes, did you eat the lasagna? 
and you'll all of a sudden realize, oh, I, I no, didn't know I was supposed I didn't. to save that. <laughs> and you're like, oh, my bad, you know, just to kind of get her off yeah. Your, yeah, your, yeah, yeah. your back. Yeah. My bad. And that's your apology. Yeah. You know, or we might just go, oh, I'm sorry. And then we walk away. Now, those aren't real apologies. Well, but what, what it was in the fridge. <laughs> it wasn't marked. So that's why they yeah, my bad. She didn't put a post-it note yeah. on it. Says, but I should Don't care. Eat this. I Don't should eat. care. You should care that you did, you inconvenienced her because now there's no dinner on the table. Everyone's hungry and crabby. She's got kids to feed and you kind of ruined her plans right yeah. even though you didn't do it on purpose or sometimes we do it on purpose it doesn't do, matter do does it that are really bad and we still just go my bad yeah you know teenagers love yeah. my bad or how about just sorry yeah get sorry, over it sorry. move on yeah well yeah you like, still got to make dinner whatever <laughs> i've got a lot of energy now i'll make it <laughs> Well, that, those are just kind of superficial, yeah. and you're really going to make the person even madder at you because, number one, you've been careless or thoughtless, or maybe even you did something that was intentionally bad. And then you just kind of like off of, you know, offhand, just kind of, oh, yeah, forget about it. Right. But they're still feeling the effects of what you did, and now they're even madder because you were so dismissive about it, all right? Right. So, you know, really we need to consider what are the steps to a real apology to make things better again. So – we want to not just have superficial expressions that easily get the offender off the hook and not feeling the full effect for their actions and how it hurt others. That's the big thing. I need to understand what my actions did to affect you and then cleaning up the mess is part of the process. So real apologies and sincere contrition involves much more than a few casual words. Apologies should signal change and should be accepted by those in the in the process of the apologies by yeah. those who are hurt. Okay, when you just say, my bad, and walk away, there was no acceptance of the other person. So happy couples and happy families are not free of mistakes. That's an important thing right. you should know about. We make, you know, mistakes all the time. Either they're intentional or not intentional, like the lasagna. You didn't know. I didn't know. Right? But see, I guess that's the thing is we uh, – a lot of times we all assume everybody knows. Yeah. Like you knew. But so I – but what should happen, I guess, is if she's hurt by that – then I should I should make sure I understand. So what happened? So I wasn't supposed to eat the lasagna, yeah. and I ruined your night. Right. Tell me. So we're going to walk through those steps okay, of what that's to say. It. Yeah, because you didn't do anything on purpose. But again, some of these are on purpose. You did something that was yeah. really rude. You yelled at someone. You yeah. should call him a bad name. And you really did something that was hurtful. So whatever it is you did, mistakes happen. And we all fail in some way or another every day. And so happy couples and happy families don't don't survive because they don't make mistakes. Right. It's because they make mistakes and then they know how to clean up the mess. Do you think some people need an apology more than others? Like do you, do you sense that some people – like hearing the apology really matters to them? It's like it, it creates closure almost versus others, they – they don't necessarily need to hear it. They'd rather just see a change. Oh, yeah. It depends on what they – yeah. Like and, I'd rather see it change yeah, maybe and, than and hear it. And I think it. these steps as we go through them, we're going to address both those t- yeah. types of people. And I think it's important that um, even though we might be someone who – our love language is actions you know, and doing things service, but also others are words of affirmation, that that we should maybe have you know some of that bo- – both of those going on. Right. Um, I think they're both important. But yeah, some people might appreciate one of the but steps more way, than the other. But either way, there's a spirit yeah, too. So to I'm going to address thing. both those. That's a really good point. So these are the four steps yeah. um, of how to really apologize and do it well and clean up your messes um, and how to apologize liberally every day. We should be just really putting that secret sauce on every day. So these are four ingredients I have down. First one is to be sincere. Like you just mentioned, you have to really – 
know that you've done something wrong and care enough that you want to make things right. Yeah. Okay, you can't just be like, okay, sorry, you know, that Get kind of thing. Get over it. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, why are you so mad about it? I just, I didn't even know. It was there in the refrigerator, you know. Yeah. So be sorry. This is where you, I think, is important that you look the person in the eye because the eyes communicate the hurt and the sincerity and the depth of how you want to match your sincerity of the apology to the level of hurt that you created. Mm. So in other words, if it is something minimal, I can look in the eye and I can immediately see it's okay. Yeah. You're fine with it. But if I really hurt you, I need to look in your eyes and start feeling just how much I hurt you. Yeah. And I look in your eyes and don't look away until the person is ready to say, yeah, I understand you are sincere. So if I say, I'm sorry, and then just stop and look them in the eye, or I apologize, and just let it sit there and look them in the eye, you'll know. You'll be able to match the level of how much I should be sincere with how much you were hurt. And some of them are not very much, and some of them are really hurt. And you might have to look in their eye uh, for a little while. Right, right. Okay? Next one, you're going to accept responsibility. So after you say, I'm sorry, and look them in the eye and kind of gauge how, how much did I hurt you. After you say, I'm or, sorry, with the sincerity that, okay, is next is accepting responsibility. You would say, next, I should never have eaten that lasagna. Or I should never have said those mean words. Um, that was my fault. Mm. Now, you may not have felt it was your fault because there was no sign on the lasagna that said don't eat this. Or, you know, sometimes it is your fault. You know you said yeah. bad words. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. But you did. That was my fault. I did eat the lasagna. Take yeah. responsibility for that. And so so just own like I, I'm Own so, it. But because but, what the, the backhanded apology is, I'm sorry I didn't know that you wanted me to not eat this. So it's kind of not – It's so dismissive. It's so dismissive. So yeah. how do I say it if I really – because if someone's innocent or oh, – I'm sorry I didn't think. I didn't think – oh, I didn't think about everyone else there. I'm sorry I was selfish. Yeah, there was at least some part in there that yeah. was your fault. Yeah, you just got to look for it. Yeah, and so you have to look for it. So at this point you say, okay, first is I'm sorry or I apologize sincere. Next, accept whatever part of responsibility that you have and don't wait for them to say, well, yeah, and it was my fault for not putting a note on lasagna or whatever. Right. You just accept your part of the responsibility, period. Mm-hmm. Or or some of it is really your your fault. You did yell. But yeah. you could also say, I'm sorry I yelled, but I'm sorry I, had I, bad, yelled at you. I had a bad day at work yeah. and the boss yelled at right. me. I mean, you, you, just you do that. own your that but, that Just stop at the but. Don't say that word. That's right. Anything after the but is 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 going to negate anything you said before. So uh, the accepting responsibility is just saying, this is my part. I have part of this to blame. I take full responsibility for what I did. Mm-hmm. The end. The end. The end. Period. Nothing end of else. story. End of story. No, not I. Sorry. No more. Yeah. I'm sorry I ate lasagna, but I bought it in the first place, so I should be able to eat whatever I want. Or you didn't put yeah. a note on it, so I didn't know. Don't justify it. it just it, own it. Just own it. So that's a really important thing that people do wrong is they say, I'm sorry, but. Don't say the but. Right. And don't wait for the other person to own their part of it. It's just what I did and accept your responsibility. So don't qualify, deflect, or excuse your behavior because it completely wipes out the apology at that point. Let's take a break, come back, continue the journey of a healthy apology with Julie Nelson, also the bomb mom. Go to her website, a spoonful of parenting.com. You can't go wrong when you're there. You can learn more about her books, Parenting with Spiritual Power, and Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger. Stick with us. More on Apologies up next.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is Julie K. Nelson, the bomb mom. You can find her at a spoonful of parenting.com, also on faculty at Utah Valley University. Today she's walking us through how to apologize. We we need to do more of it, really. And it's a two-way street, so one of us needs to apologize and one needs to receive the apology. Mm-hmm. And the tools you've taught us so far, be sincere, really know what you've done, <laughs> like investigate it. So don't just use it as a technique. Hey, I'm sorry. Uh, say I'm sorry. And then in, after you say I'm sorry, accept responsibility. Whatever your part of the failure was, own it. Own it. Mm-hmm. Because by the way, that shows I'm sorry I didn't think about you guys when I ate the lasagna. I just kind of snarfed it down myself. I'm sorry I should have been thinking about dinner for everybody. And in healthy couples use this – very well and often at that point the other person will be like oh no problem thank you because that's all they needed they yeah. need you to say i'm sorry with sincerity and then say that was my fault i didn't i didn't realize that was for dinner and they'll be like oh i'm i didn't i'm sorry honey i should have let you know and yeah. that's in healthy couples this is a very very quick um and very healthy reaction and this is all we need to do now there are sometimes we do things that are much more malicious, and um, we hurt someone much more deeply than just eating the lasagna. So let's go a little farther. So the third step would be to acknowledge the result of your mistake. Hmm. This is where you would say something like this: "I really hurt your feelings, and I feel terrible about that. I made a mess of things." And this is when you something yeah. you've done something really, really quite grievous, and. Um, you really need to talk about the impact. The person needs to know, as you have apologized, I realize the impact of what I've done on you, and I can see that I'm walking in your shoes. And when you do that, you're validating the person, and they're much more easily going to accept the, the apology when you've done something quite you know, terrible. And so state the impact of what you did so that you can truly begin that change. Because if you're doing something that is um, – Let's say something hurtful and you repeat it. You keep repeating and you never make those changes. Possibly it's because you're skipping step number three. Because if I don't realize the hurt that I'm causing and I'm walking in your shoes and feeling that for a minute, I might keep making that same mistake over Over and over again. without over. Yes, you've really got to acknowledge in the moment, what did I do that affects everyone around me? And then I can start making those changes to... Because I don't want to keep doing that. Right. I don't want to keep feeling the impact of the hurt. Which is why this you can't do this as a technique. Because mm-hmm. if I do it as a technique, really this is kind of a mental exercise first, right? Be sincere. Am I sincere about the apology? Like do I really care? <laughs> Be accountable to where you what you've done and acknowledge and think through the pain they're feeling. Because if you actually did that emotionally, you'd deliver the message so much better. Yeah. But if you just are trying to deliver the message, sorry, I recognize what I did, made it so you're hurt, and now you got to do this. Now get over it. Yeah. Yeah. Now step three gets us into the integrity of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So start. we start from the integrity of the whole process of, of self-change. And it also opens up the other person to accept the apology because their feelings have been validated. Because right. at this point, I want something for them to like reciprocate. Much more easily if I say, I really messed up and I hurt you badly and I I really understand that that was – you know, so I start to realize that I made a mess and I hurt you. That person can be like, okay, I get that you're you're humble and I get that you're having some conscience here and having some integrity. And then I'm – people who have trust issues, this step really helps. Yeah. Um, and I, I see that this is not so superficial, and they can start to be vulnerable, like you mentioned right. on, on the break. You were talking about people who have dis, you know. attachment issues. Mm-hmm. Some people that have an attachment issue, in order for me to apologize, I feel like I lose myself. I'm so vulnerable, 
And if you can't honor it, like uh, like if you're going to say, like if you're going to critique my apology, then very quickly you think, okay, I'm not apologizing. Or if because both people could have attachment issues where one person might need a lot more reassurance than you want to keep giving, so it ends up being like, Ugh, it's too hard to keep reassuring you. Of I had a I had a couple where the guy had um, looked at pornography. And she, they came in and saw me and she's like, he's got a porn addiction. And I'm like, do you have a porn addiction? He's like, uh, no. And I'm like – and she's like, yeah, you looked at porn. And anyway, the story ended up being – it was about six years ago he looked at porn once. Mm. And then he told her. But it so impacted her that he still is apologizing and she's still accusing him wow. of looking at porn. So it's – he's one that's like, am I supposed to keep apologizing yeah. for this? Yeah. It happened six years ago. Right. At what point am I – but that's the, – the spirit is still the same. If he starts to get distanced from her, which is what you're, te- you're teaching, if he can't see how he impacts her today – then that will create that same fear she had six years ago. So right. It's, so the emotional closeness. And this is get where, in it now. This is where you, you look – you're humble and brave enough to see through your loved one's eyes so that they feel that they're safe with you. Yeah. Um, now, at this point, you might say that this is where the person would – that the person who's, you know – offender would say, will you forgive me? And people say, well, in part of the process of apologizing, this is where you'd say, well, then will you forgive me? Because I'd add closure, mm-hmm. then we're done. Yeah. You know, we're not hanging on this for six years kind of thing. So you could expect the person to show some mercy right now. And asking for forgiveness is a way to ha- have to start this reconciliation. But I want you to, sit, to, to be clear that on these steps, these four steps, I don't put it in here intentionally because I don't want the person who's apologizing, it should be conditional. So at this point, will you forgive me? And and I expect this from you right now yeah. because an apology should be something that is often freely without any expectations, mm-hmm. any expectations, because it's only me owning it. Yeah. And then I hope that you'll accept that. this. But I, I, I'm not going to say this part of the steps. Now it's your turn. You have to you have to accept. And a closure because – but – and it might take six weeks before they it come back. Take, and if it's a big thing like yeah. infidelity and yeah. stuff, I mean, these are big yeah. issues. Those are huge. But part of the process is just me doing my steps and then doing it with the integrity of heart. Mm-hmm. So you could say, will you forgive me? And the other person will say, I'll think about it. And then yeah. that's good enough. And then, then when they can, yeah. they should probably come back verbally mm-hmm. and you know, make it a point. Yeah, and we also mentioned on the break, you and I, that this this process should be well balanced. So yeah. one person is always apologizing, and one's always taking it and then punishing them, right. or or you know, it's always one sided. This should be in a healthy marriage or healthy families, a very balanced where we're both apologizing sincerely and both accepting it. And 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 there seems like a difference between kind of a reconstructive apology, which you need when the just the a major damaging thing has happened and it could just be anything from infidelity to just you embarrassed me mm-hmm. majorly in front of my family <laughs> um, to to just kind of more of the day-to-day more hygiene apologies which are sorry I left the fridge open yes. <laughs> sorry I didn't bring you water yeah, yeah. but part of that is so there some of these are like major reconstruction yeah. but yeah. it's a it's a cool moment because it's it can become the spot where we healed. Yeah, and someone who's really bad at apologies, where they have a hard time saying the words, they they just don't have they have the ego. Yeah, and in their families, they were never taught to say that I'm sorry. It chokes in their throat. Right, right about here, yeah. it stops. Yeah, because we just don't, can't admit that we are wrong. Yeah, this might be a process of teaching your partner how to do it, and so be patient with them and, and- being safe. Mm-hmm. So. Part of it is being a safe receiver of it because if, if if you take a person like that and then the 
your reception isn't there because you're still judging it. You're still not over it. You're still – then it becomes their justification for not doing it anymore. I'd say I don't need to do it because you don't even accept my apologize. Yeah. How many times have I apologized for X? Yeah, and let's go to the first step because yeah. everybody talks about that. The last one is address change. Yeah. So if I'm owning this, the last step is going to be that I'm going to say what will I do to make progress towards improvement. I'm not going to keep saying the same thing over and over again. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. And then <laughs> and, and then keep doing the same thing. I mean Jesus said to forgive the offender seven times seven and I'm all for I'm all for that totally but I don't think that he meant that like if the wife keeps overspending every day and goes oh I'm sorry, sorry. That, my bad that, that he's like okay the husband should go all right <laughs> I think if you're truly sorry it means that you don't truly want to cause pain and problems anymore right. so the four step should mean that this is really uh, a sincere apology yeah we're that, changing I'm changing so it should be that you're going to say now number four my action plan to the person you've offended mm-hmm. I am going to do this now and you could even ask for their help will you help me to remember yeah. to do this or will you help me so that if I start to get upset that you'll give me a signal so I don't yell or whatever it is help me to overcome the the weakness that I have within That's me to, to go to that bad place that I go to yeah. and so will you help me and if you were the thoughtless person who ate the lasagna mat this is where you would say something like this to show you my dearest my dar- dearest darling queen. darling how sorry I am. I'm going to whip you up some burritos right yeah. now. You and the kids, you just sit back and I'll take yeah. care of it. So this is the action part. This tells you, I, by, the, by the depth of my apology, I'm going to show you by now making it right. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the change happens. So I don't go fall back and make the same stupid mistakes over and over and again. And she, like you were saying earlier, it's mutual. She could also have been appalled. And I, I should mark stuff that I'm saving. And a healthy person would acknowledge yeah. that at this point. And then, then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you have a kumbaya moment and a killer feast. <laughs> And life is good. Life is good. Oh, Julie. See, you did it again. Julie Nelson's her name. Go check out her website, a aspoonfulofparenting.com. You'll get her, her blog entries, all of her past uh, segments on our show. She's been doing this for centuries, for millennia. You're not that old. You're not that old. She's incredible. She's the bomb mom. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll be talking with two of our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. love they will never understand. A wall stacked high keeps us apart. I scream and will never be hurt. Juliet, nous montrerons jamais. Running backwards, backwards running. Hanging our snow cap, snow capping in our. For twenty-five years. I have been drowning in the Danube. Bricks of yellow and red crush my soul. My soul is not for sale. Construile. Build it. Welcome back, friends. Let's shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out uh, what's coming uh, up on their show in just about 12 minutes or so. Hello, gentlemen. What's up? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Oh, you know. How are the kids? Tuesday. Doing sports. February. And it's over 40 degrees, so I don't have much to complain about. No, it was pretty nice out there. It was raining, but now I think it's clearing up. Listen, the rain takes away all of the bad, bad air. Yes, it does. The inversion is washed out. And the gutters are just filled with blackness. 
pretty much. Did you guys hear our last commercial there? That was that was by. Um, did you hear about Lego's new brick? Lego. Are you guys big Lego guys? I was a huge Lego guy when I was a kid. In fact, I am so excited to uh, reveal the fact that I still have all of my original Lego sets and oh, give wow. them to my to my 5-year-old wow. as soon as he turns 6. That is a big deal. Yeah, he doesn't know this. You know, as a father who has lost 3 toes to Legos, um I might not do it. <laughs> I might just hold back. Yeah, I'm going to want to explore that story yeah, someday. Just because you, you step on them the rest of your life. Okay. Three vacuums, three toes. Uh, apparently, Lego has put together a 14-carat solid gold Lego that's worth about $15,000. Wow. If you guys want to buy one, you can. They're behind the times, Matt. How many other things are gold-plated now? I know. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. There's a $1,000 dessert you can buy in Las Vegas at Serendipity. <gasps> I'm going to Vegas this weekend, so I'll With go buy gold that. gold flakes. Really? But that doesn't you seem... You want to eat gold? I don't know. I hear it's great for your colon. Is it? Yeah, wait a oh minute. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's that roughage <laughs> that helps. That's what I've heard. I'm not rich enough to have it, but that's what I've heard. <laughs> hey, uh, do you guys hear about how many viewers? 117 million viewers at halftime were watching the Super Bowl. 111 million. Can you, 111 during the game. Isn't it Lady Gaga? Lady Gaga. <laughs> go, go. Gaga. Um, so those are almost nearing your ratings. Almost. She can aspire, right? Yeah. Take a few zeros off. Yeah. Yeah. But she's not on. And then how much she probably got paid to do it. Yeah. But let's not worry about it. Let's not go there. Yeah, it's not about not the money. I, I brought, let's not go there. I brought it up, but right. let's not go there. No, it's it's not about the money. It's about your passion, you know, your purpose. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Lady Gaga, I mean, the, here's here's the risk-reward with that. Everybody, there is no middle ground on the halftime show. It's like, yeah, yeah. she killed it, or, oh, my, did you see what she was wearing? <laughs> did you see her boots? Oh my goodness! I think that was yesterday's comments. Yes. Hey, um, what uh, what what's on your show? You guys are going to do your show, though, right? I mean, absolutely. You're not just giving it up today. We're discussing BYU's chances, Matt Towns. What? 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 For making the NCAA men's basketball tournament championship. <gasps> wow, that's not a the big... championship game. But just getting into just the field getting of 68. Into, the okay. field is called the basketball championship. Is, is it really? Weird. That yeah. does that yeah. does sound weird. Yeah. So we'll, we'll discuss. Listen, what's the chance BYU gets in? It's not likely at all. But, I mean, but is, there, is there a chance? There's some scenarios that could play out that are quite interesting. BYU's been in a similar situation uh, before where they have made the tourney. So well, what would it take other than oh, win the tournament in Vegas? We're saying besides that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, analyst Mark Durant will join us to weigh in on that and uh, what he thinks BYU needs to change the most between now and Vegas. For BYU, it's three weeks and uh, just a couple of days before the West Coast Conference Tournament starts in Las Vegas. BYU TV, of course, will be down there covering everything. The show will hit the road again. <laughs> we'll be in Vegas with Fat Elvis. It'll be awesome. You guys. It's what we do. Between the lines today yeah. with uh, Lauren Frankham. Yeah, you noticed the, the tents outside the Marriott Center. Yeah, that is a, game, yeah, right? a little tent city. It's intense. <laughs> yeah, Lauren Frankham ah. and between the lines went and hung out. Here are the lines. And, and played, right played a game before the game. Really? Yeah. And the game within the game, man. That's a lot of games, you guys. And big deal, no deal.
It's all games to you. That's what we do. And which BYU athlete won a national and conference player of the week award? Oh, wait, what? Huh? Totally forgot about that. I'm remembering now because Jeremy's brought it up, but yeah, there's that too. Wow. That's it? Yeah, that's, it. That's, that's all we got. That's all we got, man. It's it's one hour. It's not three. We know. It's yeah, how do you guys fit count. that in in one hour? Oh, and BYU's women's golf coach calls out you specifically for your demeanor on crosswalks on the campus of BYU. Oh, really? So did she did she notice that? that? Yeah. yeah, you're gonna you're gonna want to hear that. I'm all over the place at crosswalks. I mean, I'm on the curb usually. Well, you discuss a little bit of everything, Before including after the gold car. flakes and how they can benefit your health. Mm-hmm. High in fiber. <laughs> Guys, that sounds like a great show. It is a fantastic show. If it's not, show. we'll just do it again tomorrow. Whatever. I mean, what's funny is, yeah, it'll just just chalk it yeah, up to we, some hey, learning. Hey, it's you know sometimes you go up twenty five, sometimes you come back down twenty five. <laughs> but what you got to do is make you, sure you rush the ball and milk some clock. That's <laughs> milk it, milk At some least clock, milk. All right, guys. Well, it sounds like a great one. I know i got to let you go so you can stretch out and get ready. So uh, knock them dead. We'll be watching. Hey, see you, Matt. Make us proud. Eat some gold. Eat some gold flakes. Mmm. Gold flakes. By the way, aren't they a sponsor, Jeff, of the show? Gold flakes? Gold flakes? Uh Uh-huh. 14-karat gold flakes. They're gold. (laughs) Thanks. Roni. Roni the Riger. Good stuff. Roni the Riger. Hey, uh, we got a lot of um, stuff we've gone over today. Wave all of your fingers at your neighbor's day. It's the day you don't just give them the hang loose sign. You don't give them the I love you sign. You so just, you wave all five fingers. If, if you stick out it. your tongue and you wave all your fingers on your forehead, no, 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 that no, no, counts. No, that doesn't. No, no, no. That's that's they meant a wave. Like how is that not a subset of wave all your fingers? Your tongue is stuck out, and it has a completely different meaning. You're supposed to smile and yell, and I suggest you yell something like "Hey, neighbor." It, there's nothing in there that said you couldn't do anything else while you were waving all your fingers at them. Okay, but I think you're missing the spirit. There's a law, and there's a spirit of the law. Well, isn't it better to follow the? Spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. You're going more with the letter of the law. Yeah. Um, today I'm going with the letter of the law. Hmm. Don't know why you'd want to go different. So are you a Sadducee? Does that make you a Sadducee or a Pharisee? Yeah, both. Into the letter. Hey, uh, speaking of letters, a guy named Cheese allegedly steals a pizza. You won't believe this story. Police have arrested a man in connection with a pizza theft in Pennsylvania, and his name is Cheese. According to police documents, Sheldon Cheese, 17, and another man held a pizza delivery man at gunpoint in Penn Township on January 24th before making off with two pizza pies and $25. However, both were arrested after police found the 18-year-old Logan Alexander's vehicle near the scene with Cheese's wallet inside. Man, I love it when you find cheese inside. <laughs> the victim identified cheese as one of the perpetrators. Cheese is charged with robbery and conspiracy as an adult, along with, uh, you know, causing congestive heart failure and uh, bowel obstruction. I would just love to see the police chief in his office. Get me cheese. <laughs> Anyway, Alexander's charged with robbery, conspiracy, and corruption of minors. He's corrupted the cheese. You know what is the saddest thing about the whole thing? 
this was his first offense. This was Cheese's first offense. So before this offense, he was squeaky cheese. Mmm. Squeaky clean cheese. Then he had to go and blow it. Yep. Yep. It's frustrating. Although, of all the things you could steal, the pizza is not a bad choice. Oh, boy. That's where I'm going. Pepperoni and sausage. If the, time's... Best, the best pizza toppings ever. Pepperoni and sausage? Yes. Is that the great combo you yes. like? Okay, yes. I'll do that. And uh, so if you ever, if you ever, you know, if times get tough, you'll find me at the pizza parlor. In I the just, back alley waiting to jump the pizza guy. I may or may not have just taken a Twix bar that was left in the studio. The rule is you leave it in the studio... We own it. It's ours. I'm going to send out an email that says there's a candy that was left in the studio. If you can describe it, come and find me. I'll be the one with chocolate. No, I wouldn't even do that. I would just just eat it. What are they going to say? And they'd say, I thought you left that for me. What the heck? Hey, uh, as we end the show, we like to do a hero story. Today's hero is a flight attendant that saves a passenger from human trafficking. Listen to this. An organization training training flight attendants to spot human trafficking victims is already making its mark. Uh, Former flight attendant Nancy Rivard founded Airline Ambassadors International, which is providing humanitarian services by leveraging connections with airliners. One of their main focuses is airline uh, training airline workers to spot victims of human trafficking. And their work paid off, according to NBC News, Alaska Airlines flight attendant Sheila Federick said she instinctively felt something was wrong when she noticed a teen with a greasy uh, with greasy blonde hair on a flight from Seattle to San Francisco. The flight was uh, prior to the 2016 Super Bowl hosted by the city by the Bay, which plays in an expert uh, it plays into the expert opinion of uh, that sex trafficking spikes during big events. Anyway, this flight attendant notified the police. I left a note in one of the bathrooms, Frederick said. She wrote uh, back on the note and said, "Yes, I need help." And the flight attendant then alerted the pilots, and the police were there when they landed. How cool is that? A little training goes a long way, folks. Just open our eyes. There's more out there. People are struggling, and the heroes among us are those that just pay attention. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more hope, more insight, and help you see the good in the world. Until tomorrow, let's make it a great one. Let's take care of each other. We'll talk tomorrow.